not segue. This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And on this week's hell. What's wrong with teenagers today is pretty much what has been wrong with teenagers throughout recorded history. Why the Russian left sucks and why Facebook is blocking Russian media analysis. The very controversial history of milk didn't start with the anti-recumbent bovine growth hormone and anti-GMO campaigns. No, it started 5,000 years earlier. Localization can stop all of the problems caused by globalization dead in its tracks. And of course, we'll have a moment of truth, which I will tell you about in a moment. And I'll say goodbye to our cruel world and how it's all my fault. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week, award-winning neuroscientist Sarah Jane Blakemore, is author of Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Today's teenagers are the worst. Am I right? Well, actually, no, I'm not. They're just like yesterday's teens because throughout history, adolescents have experienced the same thing. They're developing brain. Up until a few years ago, and technological advancements like magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, scientific theory posited that brains developed only through childhood and then stopped developing. But with new digital scanning technology, we now know that on- not only do brains continue developing after you're a kid, but they continue to do so in your 20s, 30s, and even beyond. But as a teen, your brain starts developing your self-identity, and late adolescence is when the most severe psychiatric disorders can arise. So being a teen is pretty effed up, and it's not because they're jerks, it's because their young brains are still developing, and rapidly. In other words, it's time to start treating teens differently instead of dismissing their behavior as that of annoying tools. Sarah Jane is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London. Sarah Jane was named in the Times Young Female Power List 2014 and was one of only four scientists on the Sunday Times, the London Times, 100 makers of the 21st century 2014. By the way, I just used the word tool to describe the way non-teens often unfairly view teenagers. Last week during my opening monologue, I mentioned how my roommate at the Michigan Rehabilitation Center for the Blind was a tool, and someone asked me during Wednesday evening's office hours, meet and greet at Carrie's Lounge to define what I meant by a tool. So I looked it up at urbandictionary.com, and the first definition is one that pretty much sums up what I think when I use the word tool. Quote, a guy with a hugely overinflated ego who in an attempt to get undue attention to himself will act like a jackass because in his deluded state, he will think it's going to make him look cool or make others want to be like him, which is exactly the kind of thing that happens to teens while their brain is developing. But again, not that teens are actually tools, but their developing brain makes them 
appear that way. Following Sarah in our discussion on the developing brain of teenagers, we'll have the return of podcast host and Russia analyst Sean Guillory, who wrote the Jacobin article, Left in a Corner, Politically Isolated and Facing Repression, the Russian Left is Pondering Its Future. The Russian Left is in disarray. Sure, it's partly because of the repression of the left or any potential real challenge to the government of Vladimir Putin, but it's also because the left is fractured, broken into tons of pieces and struggling with the age-old question, is it best to change the system from the inside or the outside? And while that's all very interesting and we'll be going in-depth into Russia's left with Sean, there's another reason Sean's on this week's This Is Hell. On one of Sean's recent podcasts, he interviewed a Russia media expert on the Russia media's coverage of Trump and Russiagate. Sean then posted the podcast on Facebook and tried to boost the interview. That's where you give money to Facebook to supposedly increase the number of people who see your post. But Facebook wouldn't let Sean boost because... They deemed his podcast political, which Sean says it is not. It's just some analyst telling you how Russian news is covering Trump. We'll get to the bottom of that controversy and talk the Russian left when we speak with Sean, who is not only the host of the weekly uh, Sean's Russian blog podcast, where he covers Eurasian politics, history, and culture, but you may remember him being on our show back in July of last year to talk about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Rush, uh, Sean is the Digital Scholarship Curator in the Russian and Eastern European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh. After our conversation with Sean on his problems with Facebook and his analysis of the Russian left, we'll learn the history of the most controversial food in human history when we have on as a guest award-winning author Mark Kurlansky, whose new book is entitled Milk, A 10,000-Year Food Fracas. There have been controversies surrounding milk since the Sumerians. These controversies span the gamut of which milk is best, what's the preferred option for children, are milk products good for you? At, at one time, people wondered if poisoned milk was killing children at a very high rate, whether pasteurized milk is better and better for you than raw milk. And then there's the more recent scandals over PBB, recombinant bovine growth hormone, mad cow disease, and the use of antibiotics as well as GMO grain in feeding dairy cows. So why has one controversy after another followed milk? We'll find out when we hear from Mark, who received the Dayton Literary Prize for his book, Nonviolence. He also won Bon Appetit's Food Writer of the Year Award, the James Beard Award, and the Glenn Fittich Award, which sounds delicious. Marcus, Mark is the uh, author of 31 books and his 2003 book, Salt, A World History, was a Los Angeles Time, Times Best Book Prize finalist. And we'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This is Hell by speaking with award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg-Hodge, who wrote the article Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, which was posted at the Transnational Institute's website. Helena believes our global economic system, a.k.a. globalization, causes precarity, poverty, inequality, hatred, and is the primary cause of rising authoritarianism, which is destroying democracy around the world. The only way to beat all those problems of globalization is with what Helena calls localization. That is a return to the local, to the community, in your own very own backyard. Instead of thinking of determining what's best for multinational corporations and their bottom line, Helena wants us to consider what's best for your neighbors first and foremost. We've been told time and time again that there is no alternative, that globalization as it stands today is and always was inevitable. It turns out there is an alternative and it's localization. Helena is a recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize, the Goy Peace Prize, and author of the 2009 book, Ancient Futures. Lessons from Ladakh, 
for a globalizing world. Helena is also producer of the award-winning documentary The Economics of Happiness and founder and director of Local Futures and the International Alliance for Localization, as well as the founding member of the International Commission on the Future of Food and Agriculture, the International Forum on Globalization, and the Global Eco Village. In other words, she's all about globalization. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell as we do most week's shows. That is with the moment of truth. From the lovely lobes of Jeff Dorchin and this week, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his reflection, which is part two of last week's moment when Jeff went shopping for Holocaust. So that's the workings of the still-developing teenage brain and what it reveals about teenage angst. Russia's fractured left and why Facebook doesn't want you to know about Russian media coverage of Russiagate and Trump. The history of the most controversial of all foods, milk. How there is an alternative to globalization. That alternative is localization. I'll confess to my global crimes. And during a singular moment of truth, Jeff shores up, uh, shines up some atrocities to see his reflection. All that plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what's on this week's exclusive podcast for Patreon patrons of This Is Hell, which you can hear by signing up as a supporter on Patreon. The question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, probably not. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell as Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, are you going to ask Mark about the original white privilege, lactose tolerance? <laughs> uh, lactose tolerance is wonderful for us uh, Northern Europeans. Why don't you introduce to us who is in the booth with you today? Okay, hold on. Let me move my uh, one pair of headphones that work in the one pair of headphone jack, but only on the left <laughs> side, over to Kate. Uh, hi, everyone. This is Kate. Let me get her headphones on. Morning. Wait, here you go. Talk good now. <laughs> there you go. Hey, Kate. How are you? Fine. How are you doing this uh, morning? Uh, Kate, tell everybody your name. My name is Kate. Kate Slattery, <laughs> correct? That's right. Uh, and Kate is going to is a new volunteer on the show, and so she is in for training today. Thank you, and welcome to This Is Hell. Thank you. All right, that's it. Just wanted to make sure that everybody heard your voice. <laughs> sound like a chipmunk on the radio. No, you sound mm-hmm. great. You've got a lower tone. That's really awesome. I really love it. Right. Uh, this is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment, streaming live online on our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com. Okay. Now airing oh, an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho, on Radio Free Moscow. And on Lumpin' Radio on Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, soup enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is how. And Alex has this week's hangover cure, and I love the way he coughs into a hot microphone. Yeah, I didn't know the microphone when I did that. Uh, this week's hangover cure is beetroot. According to the article, 11 fun facts about beetroot from hangover cure to hair dye. Chuck, how fun were the other 10 facts here? You'll find out. At the spruceeats.com, beetroot is also an aphrodisiac. It gives you a sugar rush. It generally makes you feel better. It can be used as a litmus test. It creates stains. It can it creates stains, yeah. <laughs> uh, it can be made into a wine. It's been served in space, and the world, record, the world record holding beetroot weighed nearly 51 and a half pounds. But when it comes to a hangover cure, the article states, Betacyanin, the pigment that gives the beetroot its color, is an antioxidant, so the humble beetroot could be the key to beating up your hangover. <laughs> Betacyanin speeds up detoxification in your liver, which enables your body to turn the alcohol into a less harmful substance that can be excreted quicker than normal, which sounds pleasant. <laughs> that makes this week's hangover cure beetroot. I've been excreting quicker than normal of late. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is is hell. I 
am death. Like Vishnu who said, I am death, destroyer of worlds. But Vishnu said it to impress a prince in order to do Vishnu's duty. I'm not doing this to impress anyone. I'm doing it for my own survival. Survival. Maybe my contribution is more explicit, more like the father of nuclear weapons, Robert Oppenheimer, who said he thought of the story of Vishnu when he saw the first artificial nuclear explosion near Alamogordo on July 16, 1945, thinking to himself those words, I am death, destroyer of worlds. I'm complicit. I'm responsible. I've contributed and continue to contribute to the destruction of our planet every day. And I will again tomorrow and the day after that in the coming weeks, months, and years, decades, hopefully, I will continue being a destroyer of, well, not worlds, but this world without stopping it. And I can't help myself. I'm a lost cause, a killer who knows they're killing and will go on doing so until my end or the end of us all, whichever comes first. And I must destroy because without my part in this pernicious, subtle, slow-motion Armageddon. I will not continue to live and breathe. Every basic need that I require to exist destroys my food, my clothes, my homes. Everything eradicates the little time and space we have remaining, even the choices I make for where to put my money or how to get from point A to point B. Every one of those things is a killer, a murder of not only this generation, but ravaging future generations. I am not only a killer, but a serial killer, bent on annihilating everyone I see every day. People I love, people I would gladly sacrifice my life to save, but I won't. I'll just go on maiming and disfiguring them all. The food that fuels me kills, the chemicals used to grow my meals make dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, asphyxiating all sea life it contacts, stealing food from people who live along the shoreline, a shoreline that will soon be gone due to sea level rise. That also makes me a thief, not only of life, but of the life that is needed to support other life. I could grow my own, but don't. Instead, it has flown to me from parts unknown, at least unknown to me, because I won't even consider where it was farmed or how it got to the supermarket shelf. If I did, it would crush me, and I won't let that happen. Not at the supermarket that has put the local stores out of business and shipped their profits out of the neighborhood, starving my neighbors, forcing some to live off the trash I discard. The supermarket stores their money where I have in transnational banks that make loans to corporations that force people off their lands and push many into early death by suicide. The car we take to the supermarket, its emissions like those of all the ships, planes, and trains that bring me my food, they are all my weapons of mass destruction, as is my home heated by fossil fuels, the natural gas that is fracked out of the world now cracked open by our greed for more, the electricity that lights my home that allows me to go online, that allows me to do this radio show. It's all part of my arsenal that is the that is attacking the last breath for my, yours, our dying world. The clothing on my back produced somewhere with little environmental oversight that pollutes local water for the slave or near-slave labor who work in horrific conditions that allow for abuse of all kinds. I'm part of that plot, that conspiracy to harm even the most vulnerable, and I benefit from all of it. This is my confession. I am Vishnu. I'm Oppenheimer. I'm a human living in the 21st century. I'm a killer, and it is, and it is time I do my penance. By doing what tiny bit I can, by maybe taping, taking my money to a community bank, by no longer shopping or eating at any chains that take profits from the people on my block, by shopping at secondhand stores more often, by doing my best to make my own food and whatever I can to cut down on my killing. But it won't be enough. It will never be enough. And that's why.
This is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? What undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell, our favorite one's a copy of a book we will be featuring later this month, Assad Hyder's Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Again, the question from hell is what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the workings of the still-developing teenage brain and what it reveals about teenage angst, Russia's fractured left and why Facebook doesn't want you to know about Russian media coverage of Russiagate and Trump, the history of the most controversial of all foods, milk, how there is an alternative to globalization and that alternative is localization, and during a a singular moment of truth, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his reflection. All that, plus some rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, will tell you what's on this week's exclusive podcast for Patreon patrons of This Is Hell, which you can hear by signing up as a supporter on Patreon. Go to thisishell.com and click on support to find out how. We'll also have the question from Hell, a whole bunch of people want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Uh, We probably won't get to twist off knowledge, who's kidding who. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio so clearly, and sadly, Noam's gone insane. Uh, Let me just pick this up real quick. If you want to hear This Is Hell on your local radio station, all you have to do is contact your local radio station and tell them that This Is Hell is your source for anti-social media. Or you can just email us your favorite local radio station's call letters and we'll contact them and see if we can put them in our growing, burgeoning, not-the-media radio network. Again, all you have to do is email us, chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, or you can contact us directly with messages on Facebook or Twitter. On Facebook, we are facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And on Twitter, you can contact us at thisishellradio. Not sure if you have heard, I'm sure you've heard the news about the FBI report and James Comey. Maybe we'll be, well, let me just uh, make a little comment about that really quick. Uh, it's just mind-boggling how we are definitely living in two universes now. A universe of uh, government propaganda that tells you some, com- something completely opposite of what is the case when even evidence and facts are Uh, You're confronted with even evidence and facts. The recent report actually showed that uh, Hillary Clinton was more negatively impacted by the actions of James Comey than uh, the uh, Trump campaign was. So uh, it's very odd that here we are in a world where the president of the United States is telling you the opposite of what's in a report and claiming to actually speak on that report. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Today's teenagers are the worst, or not, mostly not, as all teenagers throughout time have been the same because they are experiencing the same thing. They're still developing brain. 
here to explain the teenage brain and what it potentially means for the way we view and can help teens. Neuroscientist, award-winning neuroscientist Sarah Jane Blakemore is author of Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sarah Jane. Thank you. You can follow Sarah Jane on Twitter at SJBlakemore. And you can find out more about Sarah Jane by uh, going to her website, by just going to our website first, thisishell.com, and clicking on her name. Uh, how does brain development during our teenage years affect our brains as we age? Because I was thinking there might be people who are listening who are not teenagers who are like, what do I care what happens in a teenager's brain? Does it matter to someone who is, say, 50 years old how their brain developed as a teen? What effect could that development have on your brain as you age? Well, I think one of the most important uh, functions of adolescence is um to develop a sense of self, to develop a, a sense of who you are, your self-identity, and particularly your sense of social self, that is how other people see you. Now, of course, that can change after adolescence, but adolescence, the teenagers in particular, is when we really start to think carefully about um, how we present ourselves, who, what, you know, what music we're into, what fashion we wear, uh, even things like our political beliefs and our moral beliefs take on a step change in importance during the teenage years. And although, of course, that can change and often does, it's when those kinds of things are first established. And this is partly for lots of social reasons, but also because of the biological changes happening uh, in our brains. And you write that perhaps uh, part of the reason why adolescents are mocked is that they do sometimes behave differently from adults. Some take risks. Many become self-conscious. They go to bed late and they uh, get up late. Is that behavior a sign of their brain developing? And is that behavior to some degree then outside their control? I don't know whether it's really outside their control because even though it's happening because of biological and probably evolutionary reasons doesn't mean that they don't have any control over it. But I think that's a slightly different point. Um, the, the main point that you're making there is, yes, you feel these uh, behavioral changes during adolescence. These are kind of behaviors that we stereotypically associate with teenagers, like risk-taking and being impulsive, making bad decisions, being very self-conscious, moody, kind of neg- all quite negative um, associations that we have with teenagers. And, and it's true that many teenagers do go through a lot of behavioral transition, and it can be a very hard time of turmoil for, for a lot of teenagers. And risk-taking does um, it is at its highest in, in adolescence. But I think one of the key key aspects of all these behavioral changes is that they often um, are oriented around the peer group. So if you think about the kinds of risks that we worry about teenagers taking, like driving risks or smoking or drinking alcohol or uh, taking drugs, these are, the, these are risks that if teenagers do take them, they tend to take them with their friends, not when they're on their own. And really it's the, this need to uh, establish themselves in their peer group and be accepted by their peer group uh, that's driving this desire not to be ostracized, not to be excluded by their peer group and go along with whatever their friends are doing. And that, might, and that sometimes is taking risks. How much better prepared can teenagers be for adolescence by knowing that their brain is developing and what that development may or may not lead to? Can can understanding that their brain is still developing make it make adolescence a more positive time in their life? 
I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't really know. I think different teenagers will be, um, respond differently to this knowledge. But certainly when I was a teenager about 30 years ago, um, nothing was known about the teenage brain. We had no idea that any brain development happens during the teenage years. That's a, quite a recent finding in, in neuroscience over the last 15 or 20 years. So when I was a teenager, um, these kinds of teenage typical behaviors that I've been talking about were all attributed to changes in hormones at puberty and also social changes in schools, you know, going from like a, a small primary school to a bigger middle school. Um, and nothing was known about brain development. So it's actually, I think it would have been really useful for me to know that my brain was undergoing so much change during during the teenage years because it would have helped, I think, me to understand that there was a sort of underlying reason for all these changes that me and all my friends were undergoing in terms of our behavior and our feelings and our our, our sort of cognitions, our thought processes. Um, and yeah, I mean, that what, what's been discovered in the last um, 20 years through neuroscience is that the brain doesn't stop developing in childhood, which is what used to be thought, but instead it continues to develop very substantially and in a very protracted way, very slowly, right throughout adolescence into the 20s. The other reason why this is might be useful for teenagers to know is because this idea that, you know, you have to learn everything, you have to do it, get everything right in your childhood, otherwise it's just too late, isn't right. The brain is still undergoing development. It's still plastic. It's still capable of change right throughout um, adolescence and into the 20s. So that kind of gives hope to teenagers who might perhaps not have done so well in school earlier on or who might need some intervention, some therapy. It's, it's not too late. The brain is still being molded in adolescence. In case there's somebody who's listening right now who's thinking that you are implying this is a way that teenagers shouldn't be held accountable for their actions or should be shirking their responsibility, uh, how would you react to that kind of response? Um, I No, I don't, I don't think, in a way, I, I don't even think that's relevant. I mean, okay. it's, um, teenagers, so another way of thinking about that is um, how do we support teenagers given that their brains are undergoing so much change? Just like, you know, we support children, little children whose brains are changing a lot. Sure. We don't expect them to do everything for themselves, to make decisions by themselves, to um, to take complete responsibility for their actions. Now, of course, that gradually changes uh, over the course of childhood and adolescence, um, but only gradually. And so it's not that teenagers should not be held at all responsible for anything they do as they get older their um that you know their brains do develop they become more adult they can do uh, um more and more sophisticated cognitive um processes but on the other hand their brains are not yet fully adult and their brains are still developing so i think if anything what this research suggests is that we should keep that in mind when we're thinking about um behaviors that might seem errant and and um, difficult. And we should try to support this age group. Well, and that leads me to uh, wondering how much more predictable teenagers are when you are aware of the changes happening to them due to the ongoing development of their brains. Do you think that this knowledge makes teenagers' actions more predictable, especially from a parent's point of view? You mean... Predict predictable in terms of being able to understand them. Yes. Yeah, although I think one key issue here is that not all teenagers are the same. And 
the neuroscience of the teenage brain has largely focused on kind of average teenage brains. You know, what does the average teenage brain look like compared to the average adult brain? But actually, if you think about teenagers, and in fact humans, there's no such thing as an average teenager. And there's no such thing as an average teenage brain. And in fact, the individual differences, the variation between individual teenagers is huge in terms of both behavior and brain development. And so although um, in a way it's, it's useful to understand uh, that your teenage teenager's brain is developing, I don't really think that makes them any more predictable because they don't all behave in exactly the same way. Some teenagers, as I'm sure you might be thinking about or some listeners might be thinking about, don't take any risks at all. And um, some teenagers are not self-conscious at all and don't seem to go through any kind of emotional turmoil, whereas others do. So it's not it's not something that... Um, everyone experiences in the same way. Also, pe- people go through um, their development at different rates, and that's another thing that parents will will know, uh, or, or teachers, or anyone who who knows this age group well. That the variation in um, in in, be- in development is so large um, because puberty happens at very different ages in different individuals. There's a sort of normal range of puberty onset of about five or six years and it's completely normal to you know if you take if you think about a group of I don't know 13 year old boys some will not have started puberty yet and others will be in late puberty and that variation um, even within the same age band of of puberty is completely normal and a lot of these developments do follow puberty so a lot of the behavior and some of the brain development seems to be associated with puberty so you get huge amounts of variation between individuals and and people scientists are just beginning to look at that variation because it probably carries a lot of meaning and ask you know why why are there all these differences what is it about someone's genetics or their environment that um, means that their brain develops slightly more quickly or more slowly than other people's brains. You write, adolescence is the time during which much of our sense of ourselves and of how we fit in with each other is laid down. The development that adolescents go through is central to human experience. So to what extent then are we our teenage self even later in life? Are we to some degree still teenagers or guided by our teenage self when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond? Well, I think the self that we develop gradually during our childhood and then in an even bigger way during our teenage years is always with us to a certain extent even though obviously things can change so if you um there's this interesting phenomenon known as the reminiscence bump whereby um episodes and events that happen to you during your teenage years and your 20s are better remembered than at any other age across the lifespan. And we don't really know why that is. It might be that, you know, that's because we're doing things, exciting things for the first time during our teenage years and our 20s. Or it might be something about the way brains are stored in our teenage years and our 20s. So so what I read, a, I read an um, article recently suggesting that um, some, something like, you know, the, the music you listen to when you're 14 is music that you'll always want to listen to, even if you don't really like it anymore. There's something reminiscent about listening to music that you first listened to and liked when you were 14. So our teenage years are really important, in, even in terms of the, the rest of our lives and how we evolve throughout the rest of our lives. 
That's interesting because it just makes me think about how much more it seems that teenagers are affected by the music that they hear. Uh, you know, and later in your life, you might not be as affected by music. And I know that's a generaliz- generalization, but it's just something I was thinking about while you're uh, mentioning that. Yeah. You, uh, you write that there are three main reasons why we can confidently say that adolescence is an important, distinct biological period of development in its own right in all cultures. First, you can see behaviors that we typically associate with adolescence, such as you were saying, risk-taking, self-consciousness, and peer influence in many different human cultures, not just those of the West. Do teenagers have less fear, or do they have fewer experiences they don't know or consider consequences? Um, Okay, so you mean, and you're talking about adolescent risk-taking. Yes. Why do they take risks? Um, there's a lot of, firstly, not all teenage, teenagers do take risks. There are, there are, it's very a kind of nuanced um, area, risk-taking, because although overall risk-taking is at its highest in the teenage years, most teenagers, even if they take a few risks, they don't take risks that result in serious harm. Um, also, risk-taking you know, can be really useful. We learn by, by risk-taking, by exploring, by seeking novelty. We learn, about, uh, we learn by trial and error. Um, but also, if you think about the risks that adolescents tend to take, it's that the context of the risk-taking is really important. And that context is normally sort of emotionally heightened or when they're with their friends. And I think that's really critical to think about because it's it's not that it sort of sheds uh, risk taking in a more rational light to think that well why are the why is this you know one of the questions I'm often asked by parents or teachers teen, uh, teacher, teachers is why do these teenagers who are very educated about risk and understand the risks associated with things like smoking say nevertheless um, you know on a weekend they're out with their friends their friends are all smoking and they accept a cigarette that seems like a silly decision. It seems like an irrational decision. But actually, if you think about it in terms of the need to maintain friendships and not be excluded by the social group because of the evolutionary pressures to become independent from your parents and affiliated with your social group, with your peer group, that's partly what adolescence is all about, becoming independent from your parents, then the need to um, go along with your peers to avoid being excluded by them um, overrides worries about other kinds of risks like um, legal risks or health risks. I, I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. Um, but it's a more it, it sheds teenage risk-taking like that in a more rational light if we think about it as this need to be accepted by the peer group. Why do you believe, and I, I just want people to hear your argument on this, why do you believe it isn't that it's teenagers today are this way or that, but that teenagers have always been the way teenagers simply are. Because it seems to me like that is empirically obvious. So why would we not? Why would we have this idea that it's today's teenagers that are horrible, not particularly when maybe I was a teenager or my grandparents were teenagers? That is such an interesting question. You ask anyone, and they will probably tell you all. Oh, and many, many people will tell you, oh, it's, you know, it's such a recent phenomenon. We, we indulge this age group. It never used to be like that. In my day, teenagers didn't get away with what they get away with now. It's really an interesting phenomenon that we kind of forget what we were like as teenagers and we forget what previous generations were like. Also, the word adolescence, the term adolescence, was only used really 
to to, um, describe this age group um, from about 120 years ago by a psychologist called Stanley Hall, who is an American psychologist in the early 20th century. So people have this idea that, you know, he invented adolescence. And before that, it didn't exist as a a developmental period. And um, as soon as you went through puberty, you were sort of adult-like. But actually, there's no evidence for that. And the evidence really suggests that... um, behaviors that we associate with teenagers today have been there throughout history. If you go back as far as, I mean, you could probably go back further, but I found amazingly poignant quotes, powerful quotes by um, Socrates and Aristotle about uh, teenage, teenage behavior. And they could be describing teenagers today, talking about their laziness, their willfulness, their egocentrism, the way they um, are are only interested in their friends, they're not in, they they don't pay any attention to authority. Um, you can find quotes like that throughout history. Shakespeare in The Winter's Tale uh, has a quote. Um, I'll try and remember it. I would there were no age between ten and three and twenty, or that youth would sleep out the rest. For there is nothing in the between but getting wenches with child, wronging the ancientry, stealing, fighting. That's Shakespeare almost 400 years ago. I mean, portraying teenagers in a, or uh, adolescents in a, in a strikingly similar and very negative way to the way we um, stereotypically think about them today. This is not a recent phenomenon. Uh, teenage behavior has been similar throughout history, and it's a really interesting phenomenon that it is, that it has been, and it's not um, uh, yeah, a recent invention, recently invented in the West. Uh, on the point of our brain continuing to develop after childhood into our teen years and even beyond, you've said uh, that has implications for things like intervention programs and educational programs for teenagers. This is from USA Today in March of this year. The suicide rate for white children and teens between 10 and 17 was up 70% between 2006 and 2016. The latest data analysis available from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Although black children and teens kill themselves less often than white youth do, the rate of increase was higher at 77%. How much can we attribute mental illnesses that teenagers so often suffer from on the way a teen's brain develops, that their changing brain is the problem they face, and intervention and educational programs can address differently now that we know that it's their brain changing due to MRIs? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is part of the jigsaw puzzle. So, it, but I, I don't think it's the only reason that um, teenagers are so susceptible to mental health problems. So, mental illness. Seventy-five um, percent of mental illness first appears during adolescence, before the age of twenty-four. Um, and the real question is why. You know, what is it about this period of life that makes it so vulnerable? to the onset of mental health problems. And I think the answer is going to be extremely complicated uh, and there's not going to be a kind of simple one reason. But so we have all these changes happening at the same time. Teenagers going through puberty, their sex hormones increasing. We know hormones affect mood. Uh, In addition, when you go through puberty, you go from being a small child to a you know, a bigger teenager who looks almost like an adult, and that that changes the way society treats you. Um, society puts more pressure, more expectations on uh, on young people once they start to look adult. 
At the same time, there are other social changes, like going from a small school to a big middle school or secondary school um, in the in the early early adolescence. Um, and at the same time, on top of all that, there are these very substantial changes going on in the brain. So I think all of those things together, including uh, brain development, probably contribute to this period being a vulnerable period to mental health problems. You write, one of my main interests as an undergraduate was schizophrenia. Perhaps my interest stemmed from the knowledge that my school friend, uh, Cameron John, uh, had developed uh, this condition just a few years after his brother Ben was diagnosed with the same illness. Schizophrenia is a devastating psychiatric disorder in which the patient loses touch with reality. It runs in families but is not completely genetic. The environment plays a role in triggering the illness in people who have a genetic predisposition, although we don't yet understand how exactly this happens. So genetics don't guarantee or ensure that we'll be schizophrenic or have any other disorder, only that we are predisposed to any disorder. If that's the case, is schizophrenia or any mental disorder, uh, even in those who are predisposed, avoidable? In theory, yes. If we knew what the environmental risk factors and the environmental protective factors were, if we knew every single one of them, then in principle, we could avoid the risk factors and indulge in the protective factors, and we, in theory, could avoid avoid it. I mean, that's a, a thought experiment because the thing is that we do you know we don't we don't have any handle on the multitude of environmental risk factors for uh, for mental health problems so it's it's almost impossible to to do that experiment and to avoid avoid them and of course if we knew them we would avoid them um but people are starting to make inroads in understanding um risk factors for things like schizophrenia and other mental health problems so schizophrenia as you might know, is a really devastating psychiatric illness, part of one of the psychosis illnesses, uh, and it's characterized by symptoms like hearing voices inside your head and being paranoid, thinking that other people are out to get you or out to harm you. And I I spent about six years uh, researching people with schizophrenia during my PhD and postdoctoral research. And what, what interested me was that out of the many hundreds of people I tested in hospitals, Uh, When I asked them what age they first started to experience these symptoms, there wasn't a single exception. They all said some age between 18 and 25. And so I became interested in why that was. What is it about this adolescence or early adulthood uh, that that means that some young people are going to develop this this illness? Now, the question is, what what risk factors are there in the environment? Uh, for schizophrenia, and we, I think you know, there, there is some evidence of a few risk factors. For example, um, being an immigrant, being an immigrant from one um, one culture to another very different culture where you're perhaps not completely socially accepted, is a risk factor. That was research done in uh, the Institute of Psychiatry in London, studying a lot of Afro-Caribbean uh, immigrants to to London, and finding that the rate of schizophrenia is much higher in those people compared with um, non-immigrants in London and also their own families back home where they came from, where they immigrated from. Um, So immigration is one risk factor. Um, Cannabis, smoking a lot of cannabis, and by cannabis I mean what we call in the UK skunk, which is very, very strong cannabis. It's the the, um, most ubiquitous type of cannabis now. 
smoking a lot of it or or consuming a lot of it before the age of 18 seems to be a risk factor. Again, that was research done by Robin Murray and his colleagues down at the Institute of Psychiatry in London. Um, and there are other risk factors as well, like living in urban environments compared to rural environments. We know that that carries a risk, but you know these risks are really, really small. It's not like changing them will eradicate schizophrenia. There are obviously lots of other risk factors going on at the same time. And of course, of course, these all load on your genetic risk factors. So if you're, if you're genetically predisposed to schizophrenia, then um, growing up in, envir- in an environment which carries a lot of environmental risk will increase your um, likelihood of developing it yourself, but it doesn't guarantee it. There's no, you know, but just because you 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 could have you could have a pe- a parent who's uh, who has schizophrenia, so you could have the genetic risk, and you could um, grow up in I don't know in an urban environment where you're an immigrant and you're smoking cannabis and still not get schizophrenia. So it's not it's not in any way um, guaranteed black and white. And your book gave me yet another reason to oppose war because you also talk about the impact that living in a war zone as an adolescence can have on your developing brain. I've got one last question for you, Sarah Jane. Uh, we've been speaking yeah. with award-winning neuroscientist Sarah Jane Blakemore. She is author of Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. Sarah Jane is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University of College, uh, University College London. You can follow Sarah Jane on Twitter at SJBlakemore, and you can find out more about Sarah Jane, just by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on her name. One thing I kept thinking about when I was reading your book is uh, school shootings here in the U.S. that are often perpetrated, if not always perpetrated, by adolescents around the age you found as the time when disorders like schizophrenia can be first noticed. What can we learn from your research in helping stop school shootings by late adolescents? Because here in the U.S., we're never going to limit gun ownership, so we desperately need some other way to address mass school shootings by teenagers. It's a really, really tricky question, but I think um, I, I think there is no simple answer to this. I cannot give a simple answer to that, and I don't think anyone could. Um, I think understanding the more we understand about teenagers and their brains and their development the more we will be able to understand and therefore prevent um, uh, behaviours like, well, risk-taking, but also those yeah, abhorrent um, school shootings. But it's all about, you know, this is a very young field of science and more and more people are working in this area. It's really expanding. Lots of um, labs all around the world now work uh, looking at um, the development of teenage behaviour and teenage brains. And that research, I think, over time will give us a lot more insight into understanding teenage behavior, even when it's um, it's really not not nice and violent. Um, there, I wanted to mention, actually, and this is relevant to your question, I think, um, a very hopeful uh, big new study called the ABCD study, the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Study, which Actually, was a, it was a um, it was one of Obama's last um, funded areas of research when he before he before he uh, left office. Uh, it um, there are about 
30 labs in the U.S. It's funded by the National Institute of Health. And they are studying, this ABCD project is studying 10,000 children aged 9 to 10 uh, as they grow up over the next 10 years. And they'll be taking measures every year or two of their brains, their behavior, their mental health, and their environment, so things like their home environment, their school environment, their nutrition, how much screen time they use. And I think over that 10 years, that that um, data set will give us an enormous insight and a huge amount of valuable information about how teenagers develop and why they behave the way they do and what predicts certain behaviors like violence and also what predicts um, the onset of mental health problems and we will have a better understanding at the end of that project about teenagers than we ever have done before. That sounds like we're on the uh, verge of a breakthrough. You know what, Sarah Jane, I uh, uh, did not introduce that question correctly and I'm glad that you uh, answered it in such a perfect way because what we do with each and every one of our guests at the, the very last question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response and that was a question from hell for you and I really appreciate your response to it. Sarah Jane Blake Blakemore is an award-winning neuroscientist, and you should get her book, Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. You can find out more about Sarah Jane on Twitter at SJBlakemore, and go to thisishell.com and click on her name to go to our website. Thank you so much for being on our show this Thank week. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was really fun. Take care. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Russia's left is disjointed, fractured, unorganized doing a horrible job challenging the government of Vladimir Putin. There's plenty of reasons why we'll find out when we speak with podcast host and Russia analyst Sean Guillory, who wrote the Jacobin article, Left in a Corner, Politically Isolated and Facing Repression, the Russian Left is Pondering Its Future. We'll also talk to Sean about uh, why Facebook told him he cannot boost a post of his podcast, Sean's Russia blog, under their new guidelines that are in reaction to Russia-funded political post during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free every Monday. Go to thisishell.com. Sign up now. This is hell in your inbox every Monday morning. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter. Start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage in your new This Is Hell coffee mug or you're browsing through a book. We gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday nights. Suddenly, you click on your inbox, and just like that, you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell, all the separate interviews and correspondence reports organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com now and start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1883, 135 years ago, some 2,000 children crowded into the Victoria Hall Theater in the northern England town of Sunderland for a special Saturday afternoon variety and magic show. Oof. Crowded hall. Kids. Magic. All during rotten history. This will not end well. At the end, the Master of Ceremonies announced that free toys would be handed out at three places in the theater. Jesus, free toys too? This is going to get real ugly real fast. Hundreds of children in the balcony immediately ran for the stairway down to the rear lobby. With no adults nearby to keep order, the kids kept piling up into the stairwell until movement was impossible. At the bottom, a doorway was partly blocked so that only one kid could squeeze through at a time. So the gift on the other side of that door better have been pretty freaking amazing. 
As the adults realized what was happening, they tried to open the door from the outside, but it had been bolted from the inside where the children were piling up. Almost 200 children were suffocated and crushed to death in the stairwell. The person responsible for bolting the door was never identified. Blocked or locked doors keep coming up in rotten history. So a note to anyone and everyone ever holding any event anywhere. Make certain that all exit doors are clearly marked, unbolted, unlocked, and unblocked. It's been a public service announcement from your friends here at This Is Hell, which reminds me, i got to get the lock on the back door of my home fix. I've been freaking out about it for weeks, and I do not want to end up as the subject of rotten history. In rotten history, 1944, 74 years ago, George Stinney, a 14-year-old African-American boy, was executed for the murder of two white girls aged 7 and 11, found dead in a ditch near his home in Alkalu, South Carolina. Let's see. Black kid found guilty of killing two white girls in Jim Crow South. I'm going to go with not guilty on this one. The arresting officer said George Stinney had confessed to the crime but provided no written statement signed by Stinney. So I don't believe he confessed. And as there's no evidence he did, no jurors should have either. But again, this is the Jim Crow South where they don't believe in equal rights under the law. Though Stinney was a minor, he was denied contact with his parents and never saw a lawyer before the trial, which took place in a single day. Again, totally believable. Anti-democratic South, 1940s. Three police officers provided the only testimony, and Stinney's court-appointed attorney neither cross-examined them nor called any other witnesses. Because in the Jim Crow South, racism was above the law. The all-white jury took 10 minutes to arrive at a guilty verdict, and there was no appeal. I'm actually surprised the jury took that long. 10 minutes? Jim Crow South? You figured they'd get that done in two. You figured they wouldn't even get up from their seats. Stinney's parents were allowed to see him only once before he went to the electric chair. The chair was designed for adults, and Stinney was barely five feet tall, so the executioners had trouble putting the electrodes on him properly. And you thought this rotten history couldn't get worse. Remember, this is the Jim Crow South we're talking about, and it upheld the grand Southern tradition of institutional racism that continues to this day. So they took the Bible that Stinney was carrying and placed it on the chair and made, it, made him sit on it while they electrocuted him, because that's showing true respect and admiration for the Christian religion. With more than 2,000 volts of electric power, it took them four minutes to kill the boy. He was the youngest person executed in the United States in the 20th century. Seventy years later, in 2014, the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern University in Boston got Stinney's case reopened. Citing new evidence and testimony, a circuit judge vacated the conviction, ruling that Stinney's confession had been forced by police and that he had been denied a fair trial. Ten minutes to determine guilt and 70 years to determine innocence. Yep, that sounds like the South. That reminds me. Can somebody donate a Confederate flag to the show so I can set it on fire? It wouldn't do any good, and it would contribute to climate change causing emissions, but damn, it would feel good. And we'd probably get a lot of traffic on YouTube. And I need the money. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. You can rate This is Hell on Facebook, and so far 143 listeners have, and 141 have given us the highest rating, 5 out of 5 stars. We got a 4-star rating from someone who came to the conclusion that This is Hell is not God's favorite radio show through the commenter's understanding of my religious beliefs, although I was unaware until that moment that I had any religious beliefs. So thanks, I guess. 
And we got a one-star rating because we are agents of Vladimir Putin, or at least we play agents of Vladimir Putin on the radio. Though the upcoming interview will probably disprove that. This week we got a five-star rating from Astrid, who writes, Thank you for continuing my education. Awesome work. May we all question more and think far more deeply. Thanks, Astrid, and I will continue to question more and think more deeply. But i got to tell you, it's very hard and tiring work. But it's a good tiring, like the kind you get from working out, I assume, because I sure as hell don't have time to work out, so I'm too busy with my questioning more and thinking more deeply. Kate also gave us five stars and writes, This is hell is a slice of heaven. Which, when I first read it, I thought she said we were a slice of bacon. Which is more accurately a rasher, and I had no idea what Kate meant. But apparently, I'm craving bacon. Thanks, Kate. You may think this is heaven, but I can assure you, for the vast majority of the U.S. and the West, especially the media, this is hell. And I really, really want bacon. We got another five-star rating, this one from Steve, who writes in reaction to the person who gave us four stars by coming to what he thought was the logical conclusion that This Is Hell is not God's favorite radio show. Steve writes, I'm giving Chuck the star that commenter Brian docked him for believing that this is not God's favorite radio show. Steve says, I just got a text from the big one, I assume that's God, who confirmed that being God doesn't mean being deprived of having a favorite guilty pleasure. And being God is a BS job anyway, at least according to God. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for the reference to our David Graeber interview on his new book, BS Jobs. It's not called BS Jobs. It's actually, you know, the word, but we can't say it on the air. And for your empirical refutation of Brian's earlier post. I mean, Steve did get a call from God, and it doesn't get much more empirical than that. And empiricism trumps logic every time. At least that's what my Philosophy 101 class taught me, I think. I can't remember. I was really high. We also want to thank Walt for giving us five stars as well, although sadly, Walt didn't leave a comment. And you can rate This Is Hell, and please leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This week's question from hell is, what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? What undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. That's the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins a copy of a book we will be featuring later this month, Assad Hyder's Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. And I think we're going to be giving that away for the next three weeks as Verso was kind enough to send us three different books. Assad has been in very high demand lately for interviews, and there's been a lot of writing about his new book, Mistaken Identity, so you'll be wanting to hear that interview when it happens later on this month. Again, the question from hell is what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell to hear all the responses and to find out 
if you have one. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our evil content upon your innocent neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. And some of you already are suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not The Media radio network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local radio station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, or you can just message us directly via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or message us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or better yet, you can just email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Russia's fractured left and why Facebook doesn't want you to know about Russian media coverage of Russiagate and Trump. The history of the most controversial of all foods, milk. How there is an alternative to globalization, and that alternative is localization. And during a moment of truth, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his own reflection. All that plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. Media? Media? Media. We will tell you what's happening uh, on this week's exclusive podcast for Patreon patrons of This Is Hell, which you can hear by signing up for as a supporter on Patreon. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Uh, we'll also have the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. Probably not. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, this is hell the Russian left is in disarray and cannot mount a respectable challenge to the government of Vladimir Putin. Here to tell us why that's the case and why Facebook won't allow our guest to boost a post of his podcast analyzing Russian media coverage of Russiagate and Trump, returning to This Is Hell podcast host and Russia analyst Sean Guillory wrote the Jacobin article, Left in a Corner... Politically isolated and facing repression, the Russian left is pondering its future. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sean. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Sean is the host of the weekly Sean's Russia blog podcast, where he covers Eurasian politics, history, and culture. You may remember Sean being on our show back in July of last year to talk about Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who people were comparing to Donald Trump at the time, and Sean explained... Don't make that comparison. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean's Russia blog, and you can find out more about Sean at Sean's Russia blog.org. You've been wrapped up in a controversy of late when it comes to posting on Facebook. So let's get to that right away at the Sean's Russia blog, Facebook page. You posted, I would like to promote this interview with analyst and author Lawrence Bogoslav on Russian press coverage of Trump. Besides being quite interesting in and of itself, I think people would do well knowing how the other side sees Trump, Russiagate, and Russian meddling. I need your help, so please share or send it to anyone you think would be interested. The reason is I tried to boost this post on Facebook, but it was rejected because it's a political, quote-unquote political ad, to place a political ad. I'd have to give Facebook my mailing address, driver's license, or passport number, and the last four digits of my social security number. What do you think they mean by your post being political? Isn't everything for that matter political? And, and wouldn't, that, wouldn't that mean that any news source reporting on anything Trump in Russia would not be allowed to be boosted? I mean, that seems to be the case. Um, you know, I, I, the only thing I can think of is that 
um, it be it was about Trump and Russia. This is the only thing I could imagine because I doubt they listened to the interview, which is about an edited collection of Russian press articles that have been translated to English, really from the 1990s, about how Russians have reported on Trump, and particularly around the election. Um, and I guess this is too sensitive, uh, politically sensitive, to be boosted as a post. You know, basically for me to give Facebook money. Uh, you know, now they're defining what is political and what isn't for us. So, yeah, and this is the thing that I, I don't really get because you you tested this theory by placing an ad for your last podcast with another uh, Russian author, uh, Michael Idov, and it was approved. Not only right, you're right. Not only do I reject that my podcast on Russian uh, coverage of Trump is political, there's no way I'm giving them my driver's license or passport or mailing address. I've looked at their data privacy statement, and I can't find anything specific about what Facebook does with this information, unless I'm missing something, which is entirely possible. So, is Facebook blocking? your podcast being boosted, in your opinion, not based on the podcast content, but this individual edition of your podcast title. In other words, is are they just doing keyword searches and not considering your actual content? I think they are because I actually tried boosting another post, the, the interview I did uh, with um, a journalist that covers Russian foreign policy towards Israel, Iran, and Syria, and I tried to boost that, and that was rejected for being political. But then my next interview, which dealt with Russian literature and terrorism, that was not deemed political by Facebook. So <laughs> I can only think that there's basically keywords, um, you know, or or the images, or you know, maybe the description. I don't know, but I, I just I I really have a problem. I mean. The, the privacy information aside, which, you know, granted, I'm not I'm not a legal expert on this stuff, but, you know, as a lay person who just looked into, you know, what, OK, if I give them this information, what are they going to do with it? Because we all know that Facebook's part of its business model is selling people's information. Um, you know, I just wasn't comfortable to do that, to to give them money and have to give my identity. And then but, you know, the bigger problem is, I think, is that they're using their monopoly power to define what is political and what isn't. For people like myself or others who want to, uh, you know, spread the word about you know the stuff they're doing, and there have been a couple of media articles as a result of this uh, that, where other people are being caught up in this as well. So, you know, I'm certainly not the only one. I know uh, there's another podcast that review, that interviews scholars about books. Uh, they have a Russia channel. They their their interview with on this Russian uh, Russians on Trump book was also not approved. Uh, they have a, a books on pod, new pol, or books on politics channel, which their their podcast about you know books about political science have not been approved. So I think this is a really like you know Facebook has been put into a situation where it doesn't want its monopoly a power question, but it also you know wants to get out from under all the scrutiny it's gotten for you know fake news or whatever you want to call it. But I think it's a really dangerous precedent they're setting. I'm definitely going to try to boost this uh, interview when we put it online to see what happens. I think I'll just call it Trump, Terrorism, Sean Guillory, Russia, and see what happens. So so what, we'll effect, what effect do you think this is, uh, policy will have on the ability for users of Facebook to share Facebook? What do you think, or share their information on Facebook? What do you think this signals for the future of sharing information on Facebook? I think either you're going to have to give information, you know, you're going to have to go through the, these hoops because what they do is after you register all this information, then they send you a physical letter, which gives you some sort of code to put in to verify your existence. 
And, you know, from, from one aspect, I understand, you know, why they would want to verify an advertiser's existence, considering all the things that have happened in the last couple of years. But, you know, the fact that they're only requiring this for people who are posting, quote unquote, political ads, I think is a real big problem. If they required everybody to register, then, you know, as unpleasant as it is, I would understand, right? I think that's a reasonable, technically a reasonable request. But the fact that they're only doing this for so-called political content is, is you know, really troubling. And I think what is going to happen is that, you know, people like myself, who either relies on friends and listeners to spread the word, and Facebook does account for a lot of my traffic. I'm sure it's similar for you to, for This Is Hell as well. It, it basically puts, it prevents me from, you know, giving them a couple of bucks. You know, I'm not giving them a lot of money, but it, it allows more people to be exposed to the content I'm providing about Russia, which is essentially my mission, you know, is to increase the awareness and knowledge of Russia as a very complicated, rich history and not, you know, what you get in a normal me- media coverage. You gotta save that letter from Facebook. That's like getting a telegraph from a phone company. That's 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 friggin' great, dude. A, an actual letter from Facebook. Who knew they even had letters anymore? I, I bet they. they had... Shocking. <laughs> so uh, Facebook yeah. won't allow you to uh, boost this podcast, and I just want to talk about this podcast just for a second. So Bogoslav's mm-hmm. writing on Russian media media's coverage of Trump it dates back to Trump's coverage in the 1990s. So prior to being president or even running for president, how did Russia mm-hmm. uh, media Russian media view Trump? Well, it, he's not Bogoslav isn't writing about it. He's republishing translations of articles that the Russian press wrote about Trump. Right. He's not commentating. So it's interesting because at the beginning in the 1990s, they kind of saw Trump as this symbol of American capitalism. Right. He's really over the top. And in the in the 1990s for Russia, in the sense of, you know, what is capitalism? What is a capitalist? And in in some respects, he kind of served as as an image for this, you know, wheeling and dealing rich guy who's ostentatious. And then by the mid-2000s, as more skepticism of capitalism became in the Russian press and, and intellectuals and co- analysts, Trump became, they were quite wary of him because that was the time when he was going to Moscow, he was trying to do hotel deals, and they kind of saw him as you know, a potentially kind of corrupt figure, not necessarily an honest figure. Um, so they kind of, and two ostentations and basically kind of a blowhard. So there was more skepticism towards him. Uh, and then by the election, uh, there's a wide array, and most of the articles in the volume deals with the election, of course, and, and after the election, there's a wide array of opinions from the nationalist Russian right, which sees Trump as like the savior for you know, the globe, the world and conservative values to more skeptical understandings of what is going on. What does this say about American politics and what does this have to do with us in Russia? And what's really fascinating about these these articles, the sensible ones uh, from analysts, is that they have a really deep understanding of American politics, so much so that some of the things that American politicians, American commentators were saying about Trump's presidency as representing like uh, frustration amongst the American electorate, people who felt left out from you know the system. Some Russian commentators were already pointing to that in 2015. 
Well, that's really interesting because being outside of it, you don't have to, you're not so immersed with whatever echo chamber that you're in and the narrative that we're having here in the U.S. about the news. Is it fair for me to assume? OK, I know it's never fair to assume, but is it accurate for me to guess that Russian media is completely dismissive of Russiagate and they view it as some sort of Rus- Russophobic conspiracy theory? Um, it depends on where, the, the, where they stand on the political spectrum. Right. So the more conservative outlets, of course, just kind of laugh at it and just see it as, you know, this is uh, a fight within the American political class, and they're using us as a scapegoat. This is just Russophobia we've seen forever, blah, blah, blah. What's actually more interesting is the, the liberal responses, because <laughs> the Russia they see in American press around all of this Russia gate is a Russia they don't even have never known to exist, which is a Russia that a Russian government that's very effective in its operations, a Russian government that is able to, you know, fool and swindle people with propaganda, a, a Russian state that has some sort of, you know, mastermind uh, leader, i.e. Putin and security services. Um, you know, it, they, they, a lot of liberal Russians, uh, and they've written about this in the Russian press, and some extent even in English, uh, they're like, what is this Russia <laughs> they're talking about? And uh, the other thing is that it, they see it as quite disturbing because in some ways it, it gives them, it, it tells them that some of the things the Russian government has been telling them about the American, American Russophobia might actually be true. And for, for some of them, they, they held up the American media as a model to emulate in terms of journalism. And this has shown that at the end of the day, they're just as you know partisan and re- reflecting the the dominant discourses of of the system they live in. So fantastic! At least uh, U.S. mainstream uh, media and journalism is destroying itself to the Russian audience. I kind of <laughs> wish they'd do it over here too. So let's get to your uh, Jacobin article on Russia's sure. left. You quote Sergei Udaltsov. Uh, the leader of the Left Front, as he concluded his plea for Russian leftists to support the Communist Party candidate Pavel Grudinin uh, at an early February forum on the Russian presidential election. And this was, uh, the election was in March, so this was a month before the election. And Udaltsov said, many see non-systemic leftists as rejects and losers who secretly masturbate somewhere and have nothing serious to offer. Enough masturbating in the corner, let's embrace this system to the death. You write how this pointed to a dilemma that leftists have debated throughout history. To what extent should a left-wing movement participate in the system? It ultimately seeks to destroy. The issue before Udaltsov and others was whether to support Grudinin or join the liberal opposition leader Alexei Navalny's call to boycott the election, challenge the system from within or from without. It's an old question. Is that the primary debate right now amongst the opposition to Vladimir Putin in Russia? Um, yeah, I would say in, in a real general sense is, is how do you approach, um, how do you build a movement and how do you, what do you do with the movement that exists, which is primarily around Alexei, I mean, uh, um, Alexei Navalny. Uh, and, you know, Udaltsov, who I think rightfully calls for the le- Russian left to be a third force, um, and nonetheless, the Russian left is incredibly weak and doesn't really have a strong constituency. And in many respects, it's left in a position where it actually has to be a part of and to some extent even take advantage of the crowds that Navalny is able to mobilize. Um, some Russian leftists who, who 
argue for at least standing in some sort of cooperation with Navalny, which Ugovsov himself doesn't reject. Um, he would like to cooperate as well. But they say that, you know, look, if you leave this opposite, Russian op- political opposition in the hands of Navalny, and having politics that we recognize and disagree with, his neoliberalism, his nationalism, things like this, then you're basically saying we won't have a, a say-so uh, in this movement if we stand on the sidelines. So we have to participate on it if we want to have any influence over its direction. So is this kind of like the whatever there is of a left here in the United States? Is it kind of like them voting for the Democratic Party candidate, even though they completely disagree with the Democratic Party candidate? They only see it as an opposition vote to the conservative and Republican candidate. In some respects, yeah. But the other thing, the other problem, of course, is that in Russia, and and you certainly have that here, but I think in Russia it's a lot more difficult, of course, because of the political system, but you have a lot of protests going on, a lot of small protests around the country. Uh, Outside of Moscow for the last six months, there have been some pretty interesting and and loud protests from residents against um, landfills and garbage dumps some of which have emanated toxic fumes, sending children to the hospital. I mean, there's some great one protest. You actually have residents at this this protest throwing snowballs at the riot police and trying to beat up the, the local mayor. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, Russian leftists, of course, back all of this stuff, but it's really difficult for them to parachute in and try to be a part of these movements because, one, they're very localized. The locals tend to be suspect, and they repeatedly say in their protests that this isn't political, because they understand that if you start making political protests, then the, the chances of the authorities coming down and squashing it are even greater. Though, of course, in these garbage protests, you do have the arrest of some of the organized local organizers. So, so what explains why... <laughs> I'm only I'm sorry to come off as an idiot. What explains why I'm only hearing about this now from you? Why aren't these kind of protests in Russia covered here in the U.S. media? I mean, I understand that they've decided that having foreign bureaus is just too expensive and blah, blah, blah. But they could pick up Reuters feeds. They could pick up other feeds from other countries. What explains why we don't see the coverage of these protests in Russia? A lot of it, I think, is because, I mean, you do have a little bit, you know, but you have to search for it, right? You have to be somebody like me who actually like, pays attention to this stuff, I think. But, in, you know, in a general sense, you're right. It, they're not covered. Um, and I think the reason why is that a lot of the protests in Russia, a lot of these local protests, um, they don't fit into uh, an American understanding of how protests in Russia should be. That is, it should be democratic. It should be about toppling the system. And a lot of these local protests aren't about Putin. Um, they're about, you know, local business leaders, local politicians. A lot of the, the ire of locals is geared to those figures and not necessarily geared to this, the central government because, A, they understand that, you know, this isn't going to appealing to the government and complaining about the central, the federal government isn't going to help us. And they try to use the pressure on locals to actually get the federal government to, to intervene. So you'll have these interesting cases where locals strategically appear appeal to Putin uh, and federal officials to come in and basically clean up, uh, you know, their corrupt local officials. And this unfortunately doesn't fit into a kind of general sense of, you know, American American media looking at 
protest in Russia or in a lot of other places as as inevitably making that country more like us. But doesn't right? this, these issues are rooted locally? Doesn't this lead to a perception here in the U.S. of whatever country where we ignore these protests that there is a lack of dissent and potential for uh, far more totalitarianism than may actually exist within whatever country it is? Right. It does. And, and another thing it, it, it misses, too, is that it, it, you fail to see that for, for Russians on the local level, they have a lot of concerns, a lot of ecological concerns. Um, a lot of they protest issues like, you know, the attempts to build uh, pipelines through their towns and villages from uh, gas companies. They uh, protest against, you know, the spilling of toxic waste, which, you know, ruins their mushroom picking or ruins their land. Um, it, it, it doesn't allow us to see Russians as multidimensional people who actually care about issues, you know, in some ways similar to a lot of us. Um, so that's the one thing. Two, I think it, it also gives the false impression that, you know, Russians aren't politically active, that they're disconnected um, and that they, you know, kind of blindly follow whatever their government tells them. Uh, and this just isn't the case. Um, they just don't really approach their government the way we want them to. You're right. Now, let's talk about a, dis- a different disconnect, because you write that even yeah. as the organized Russian left remained adrift, and this is during the 1990s after the uh, Soviet Union fell on December 26th, 1991. I always love that it's on Boxing Day. I don't know why. <laughs> it's the day that, you know, when servants are supposed to be served by their masters. I don't know. There's just something right. weird there. I don't know what it is. But uh, why, the, why the disconnect between the intellectual left's vibrancy and the organized left being, well, organized? Well, in those early days, in the 1990s, particularly after the 1996 election, um, the Communist Party basically just, just especially after Putin became president, um, it lost a lot of its prestige and it, it lost its will to really challenge the system. I mean, today, the, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation is a nominal opposition. You know, they, in Russia, they call it the systemic opposition. Um, it's a nominal opposition. It may kind of grumble. It runs candidates to oppose the ruling party or, or the government. But it really, most of the time, it votes along with the government. Um, it doesn't pose any real opposition to, to the Putin system at all. Uh, and so you do get this disconnect. Be- and then also you, for a lot of intellectuals, uh, the, the Russian Communist Party is incredibly conservative. It's a nationalist party for the most part. It's socially conservative. It's in many ways intellectually conservative. It, 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 it scoffs at, you know, so-called Western styles and values. Um, and then it has the taint of, you know, Soviet repression. So, and it's kind of, it's continued glorification of Stalin. So for a lot of intellectuals who are rethinking the Soviet experience and maybe influenced by, as I say, translations of, you know, new Marxist thought or post-structuralist thought, the KPRF is, is the Russian Communist Party is just, you know, a dinosaur, that there's no future in it. Um, but I should say that for the last couple of years, there's been some stirrings, particularly in the provincial, at the provincial level in provincial Russia, of younger, uh, more motivated Communist Party members who are trying to change that party from within. But they have made, I think, little headway in terms of the party at the federal level. Uh, for the most part, it seems that even on the provincial level, they're still kowtowing to, to the government. 
You write that the first decade of Putinism had paradoxical consequences. It provided left-wing intellectuals the means to reflect on the Soviet system and reconfigure socialist politics, just as Putin's oil boom was robbing it of a political constituency, a potential constituency. How did the oil boom rob the left of its constituency? How much does oil keep Putin popular and in power? Um, I mean, oil is significant. Um, because first off, it allows the Russian government to, it pegs its budget to oil prices. So when oil prices are high, they're able to maintain, you know, pensions and health care and a lot of social services. Um, but most importantly, in the mid-2000s, you know, it, it shouldn't be taken lightly how much Russia transformed in the mid-2000s because of high oil prices. People suddenly, you know, unemployment, I mean, employment was increased, salaries were increased, uh, people were able to renovate their apartments, they were able to buy new cars, they were able to travel. Um, and the oil boom created enough of a middle class uh, in Russia to sap any kind of disgruntledness amongst the population in general. I mean, this is not to say that everybody benefited, everybody didn't benefit. But enough people benefited. And just from seeing, looking around you and comparing what your life was in the 1990s and even in the Soviet period, you were living, Russians were living better on average than they ever had. So this, of course, these good times, as you know, you can imagine, made left politics kind of irrelevant to some extent. Um, it's it's quite interesting that you know people like uh, Alexei Navalny and other liberal oppositionists, the, this young new young cohort that's uh, rising in Russian uh, opposition circles, are basically Putin's children. You know they they come from families more or less that you know benefited off the 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 economic prosperity of the 2000s, and that memory continues to some extent, um, and in this maintains Putin's power. But the other thing I think is also more important than that is that Putin and his government has been incredibly successful of, of, to eliminate uh, any potential alternative to his power. So, you know, you can ask Russians, you know, I may not like Putin, they may say, but who else? Who else is actually viable? Um, and it's really hard to find anyone. And yeah, let's get to that point, because you write the 2011-2012 mass protests against electoral fraud in which Russian leftists were key participants offered a brief resurgence, but the state struck back with manifold forms of repression, harassment, detention, blacklisting, surveillance, and manufactured crimes targeting nationalists, liberals, and leftists alike. So to what extent, then, is it even possible for the left to challenge power? Is it not that the vote was fixed in favor of Putin? but that the entire political system is? The entire political system is. I mean, there, this is why the dilemma of, you know, do you try to build an independent left movement or you de decide to try to hook up with Navalny's movement is so crucial because the avenues and space for actual political participation and building any kind of political force are so narrow that you're kind of left with the options you have. I mean, I get a lot of criticism from, you know, online for saying, the Russian left needs to stand with Navalny in, in some respect, in some way. And, you know, the answer is, well, he's a nationalist. He's this, he's that. He's neoliberal. Well, yeah, that's all true. But uh, sometimes as, you know, opposition movements and leftists have to deal with the politics they have, not the politics they want. And my friends um, in Russia who are part of the left, who are mostly in the Russian socialist movement, for example, 
uh, they they understand and see that they have very little choice. Uh, yeah, they they completely agree disagree with a lot of Navalny's politics, but nevertheless, I mean, he's able to bring out thousands of people in the street. So you have to deal with that somehow. So how much better would the the left be? How much better off would Russia be with Navalny in power instead of Putin? I mean, th- nobody knows. You know, people thought that Russia would be off with better off with Yeltsin in power, and look what they got. <laughs> people at the beginning, when Putin was was when became president, you know, named president of Russia and then elected, the American. You can go back and look at the American press. They thought Russia was going to be better with Putin too, um, and they were all very happy. You know, they they lib- labeled him a reformer and a liberal and all of this stuff. Well, you know, this is what they got. The problem is is that Russia doesn't need another Alexei Navalny. Right. They don't need another white horse guy on a white horse to save the system like they've had with Yeltsin and Putin. They need a wide, broad democratization of their politics and society. I mean, in my view, when it comes to Russia first, the Russians are going to have to fix it themselves and they're going to have to fix it according to the politics and culture of their of their country. And, you know, putting all your hope on one guy isn't going to really change much of the system uh, because the system is much more embedded uh, than one guy can fix. And you talked about, you know, you write about all these uh, protests and the mass arrests that were taking place. Uh, One of the reasons that Alexei Navalny cannot run for president is because he is a a convicted, uh, he's convicted of a previous crime. So how much did the arrests at the protests in 2011, 2012, criminalize the left and make its leaders ineligible for elections. Yeah, I mean, Udalsov went to prison for, for four and a half years. Um, it, it essentially crushed his organization. The tactics that the Kremlin use are actually really interesting because, you know, for Alexei Navalny, they, they put him on trial for all of these fraud charges. For some other liberal politicians, they house arrest them or they search them and kind of scared them into you know, making peace with the regime. You can see this with Ksenia Sobchak, who, who ran for president this year as well. Uh, the left were, were raided and arrested, and some fled the country. Um, and then they, the, a chill just went through the entire political uh, opposition, and then, of course, culminated with the assassination of Boris Nemtsov in 2015, uh, really put the lid on it. So um, the repression is, is really effective. Um, but it's not necessarily just it's the way the Russian government does repression is it just makes your life difficult and, you know, throws you in jail or doesn't give you permits for protests or squashes your attempts to organize. Um, and this is the way. And then sometimes it uses violence. Is Putin also doing the same thing when it comes to any potential right-wing challenge, if there is any challenge of Putin from the right, does he also focus on uh, anybody who is farther to the right of him that might be a potential challenger for him in the future? This is actually an interesting thing that I wish got more that got more attention, considering all of the rhetoric about Russia being fascist and nationalist. The thing is, is that the right, the street right, the kind of neo-Nazi, anti-immigration, the far kind of ethno-nationalist Russian right, um, all of their leaders have been arrested too. Uh, you have, I think there, there's a couple of these guys who are leading 
some of these prominent movements, even during the, the 2011-2012 protests, who are now in jail. Uh, so you do get a two-pronged kind of bit. The, the government goes after the extremes. Um, the way it deals with those extremes on a daily level is far different. There's far more tolerance, I think, towards kind of right-wing street nationalism than there is for the left. I mean, you can see this in terms of how it's persecuting uh, anti-fascist youth today, I mean, including some pretty serious torture. But nonetheless, they do go after at least the leadership of those right-wing organizations. I mean, the Russian right, the street right, the organized right, is pretty much destroyed for all intents and purposes. Or they're co-opted in some, like the, the war in the Donbass, was a way to divert a lot of that energy actually towards eastern Ukraine. So you get a lot of these people who are going and volunteering, or you did in 2014, 2015, a lot of you know Russian nationalists going and volunteering to fight with separatists in eastern Ukraine and things like this. So that and Crimea also let a lot of that steam out as well. But there still is a Russian nationalist right that actually doesn't like Putin at all, mostly because. They either see him as uh, too friendly towards Jews, because Putin has really good relationships with Israel and things like this, or he's not nationalist enough. So where would you place, and I, I know that this is going to be misleading in some way, and you're going to have to explain why it is, because uh, where would you then place Vladimir Putin on a left-right-wing political spectrum? Is he a centrist right-winger? I mean, where, how would you describe him? In America or in Russia? In Russia. In Russia, he is um, a kind of center-right figure. And in the United he States, how would we view him? In the United States, he would probably be more on the Republican right before the Tea Party. <laughs> okay. So culturally conservative, uh, maybe mildly positive. Uh, populist. I mean, he does have populist tendencies, but he's not flamboyant really too much about it. Uh, but on the on the other hand, his economic policies tend to be quite neoliberal for the most part, uh, particularly told so, towards social services. So he, I, I would, I wouldn't say he's in the same camp as Trump, just because that's kind of a, a bad characterization. But I think he certainly would find a good place amongst the kind of Christian. Uh, right wing of uh, politicians, mainstream politicians of America. You write the Russian left is mostly an activist centered movement that tries to connect local struggles to larger issues of corruption, labor rights, ecology, political rights and freedom of speech, poverty and income inequality. Is corruption the leading concern of those who are opposed to or even those who support Putin? Is that the number one concern of uh, Russians today? I think it's it's definitely up there. Um, another concern, I think, is is issues of wages uh, and standard of living. I think that's growing as a concern. But corruption is really the one lightning rod uh, to really get people mobilized because uh, corruption is an everyday thing. You know, from the police to getting a driver's license, all the way up to the big corruption, which doesn't hit you personally, but you can see that all of these rich politicians are somehow becoming richer and the social situation or the infrastructure of Russia kind of remains the same. Um, the, the daily corruption is, from my understanding, is getting better. There's less being extracted on a daily level. 
But, you know, it's really significant that when Alexei Navalny did this video report about Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, um, it was wildly popular. I can't re- I just heard a few days ago how many tens of millions of, of views on YouTube for this this report he did exposing Medvedev as basically not one of the prince among thieves, as basically one of the thieves among all the other thieves. So it and local corruption is really important too, because so for example, when Navalny has these national protests where he's calling for people to have protests about corruption. And in other towns outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, there people are protesting against local corruption, not necessarily about the corruption in, in Moscow, which they all understand exists, but they can't do much about it. Uh, but their local corruption is quite the, the relationship between local politicians and business um, is is a is a really clear thing for a lot of Russians who who are politically engaged. So. One of the things that you write about is how uh, some left-wing parties, some people on the left, are are communist in name only and represent more a mixture of Soviet nostalgia and patriotism taken to the point of parody. When it comes to any Soviet nostalgia, what are they nostalgic for? What was it about the Soviet Union, at least that they believe, made life better than it is today, whether that's an accurate memory or not? Um. A lot of it is for a stability. Uh, this is uh, uh, something, of course, the Putin government use, re- uses repeatedly. But a lot of the nostalgia is actually for the 70s, um, where you were guaranteed employment, you were you know, allowed to go on vacation, and this is all paid for through your workplace. Um, it was basically uh, uh, the Soviet Union in the 70s you know, between, you know, under Brezhnev, was essentially a paternal state. Um, and I think there's a there's a nostalgic view for that, that a lot of the, the daily hardships and disruptions, though this is not to say that they weren't in the 70s, but at least the memory is kind of an, of a golden age uh, in some respects. You know, also Russia on an international level, right? It was the time of detente. This was when the Soviet Union was at parity with the United States, but the the Soviet Union and the conflict between America and Russia, though there it was kind of softened, and Russia was con- the Soviet Union was considered a partner in the global order. So, I mean, all of these things is I mean, it's similar to how I think Americans imagined the 1950s in many respects. Interesting. Uh, You write that when it comes to the inability of challenging Putin, political divisions have finished the work repression couldn't. Disagreements disagreements over the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, Russia's annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass have compounded existing splits among leftists. Some groups which oppose the Maidan as a fascist coup support the Crimea annexation and view the Donbass as a proletarian struggle. These views place them closer to Russian nationalists in the Putin regime than to their potential comrades who see the Maidan as a popular uprising and the Russian government's action as imperialism. The polarization around Ukraine has made it difficult to maintain a middle position. How split is the entirety of Russia over Ukraine? And does that split continue and continue to grow? Uh, and I hate to make comparisons, but as it continued and continued to grow here in the U.S. over what took place in Vietnam, as well as what took place in Iraq? Uh, Ukraine, the Ukrainian conflict uh, amongst, I think, the Russian population in general is, is not even an issue anymore. 
Um, I think, and it, and when it was an issue in 2014 and 2015, I think the government was, the, the Russian government was really effective in basically saying, look, this is what happens when you have revolution. It equals chaos. This is their whole line. The Russian government is rapid political change equals chaos. And they point to the Arab Spring. They point to Ukraine. Um, and, and they point to Syria. Um, so it, I think they were really effective. Now the Ukrainian situation, uh, you know, it still maintains a propaganda value in showing Ukraine as a total basket case to kind of show Russians, look, you have it good here. Things are stable. Um, you don't have, you know, fascists marching in the street. You don't have a war going on in the east, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think it, it doesn't I don't think it really has any effect on the general political outlook of the population. You quote a woman by the name of uh, Daria Mitna, and she talks about, uh, she's by the Committee of the United Communist Party, telling Novaya Gazeta, uh, we waited five years for the left front Sergei Udaltsov to be freed from jail and lead a broad left movement, but instead he's going around carrying a briefcase for someone else. You explain that someone else Daria refers to as Pavel Grudinin, the strawberry oligarch who runs the Lenin State Farm, a so-called socialist oasis outside of Moscow. Grudinin became the Communist Party candidate after he won the left Front's online primaries. This put pressure on Gennady Zyoganov, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation's electoral dinosaur, to stand aside in the hope of injecting the Communist Party with new vigor. In Daria Mitna's view, why doesn't Grudinin represent that broad left movement she had hoped for? And why do you think Uzaltsov then backed Grudinin? Um, he doesn't represent it because they are skeptical of his uh is his farm and his strawberry business, where he has all the trappings of kind of a socialist. Um, you know, his workers are paid well, they do get good services. Um, but, you know, Grudinin, it was discovered, has offshore accounts. Uh, most of his income actually comes from renting land to, you know, to um, businesses to, to have their buildings and stores on. Um, they, they are really skeptical of, of him for these reasons. Um, and I think the reason why Udolf Tov supported Grudinin is Udolf Tov wants to try to do two things. He wants to have some sort of united left. Um, and in the election cycle, Grudinin was really, you know, for all the criticism one may lay at him. Um, he was the only really serious candidate amongst the basically a, a group of jokers. I mean, he also had a bit of a kind of unseriousness too. But in terms of like an actual politician, at least he was serious to some extent. I mean, if you look at some of these debates, television debates on te Russian television, none of which, of course, include Putin, it's a complete fiasco. Um, and so I think he wanted to at least try to use Grudinin's candidacy to bring together all left forces. Um, and then the other, I think, is just, you know, like in most places, the United States being one during during um, election season, you get more political talk. So by backing his candidacy, it opens up more space to to go speak to people, to have discussions about, you know, leftist politics or leftist positions. You have more visibility because Grudinin is on television. He's being interviewed. So I think in that sense, it's a very kind of, you know, instrumental backing. 
You're right. Udaltsov doesn't rule out cooperation with Navalny. The problem is Navalny and other liberals don't seem to want to cooperate with him. In an interview in the Daily Storm, Udaltsov called for a return to the alliance between the left liberals and nationalists of 2012. But when he reached out to Ilya Yashin, the liberal activist responded, you supported the annexation of Crimea. You are on Putin's side. And how can I work with you if you are such bad people? How accurate is that assessment of the left? To what degree is the left on Putin's side? Well, in terms of Udal Tsov, uh, the, the left front, the Communist Party, and some of these other smaller communist, more neo-Stalinist groups, they represent in Russia what's called the, the patriotic left. So they have trappings of, of nationalism. They have trappings of dreams of Russian great, you know, power status. They have even have dreams of Russia as an, as another, as an empire in the sense of, you know, basically all of these former Soviet states coming back together under some central Russian domination or confederation, if you want to be soft about it. So in that sense, they do have a problem. And, and a lot of members of or that wing of the left, which is unfortunately the, the majority, um, you know, saw Crimea as, as a restoration of Russian greatness. Um, they, they, they view the conflict in the Donbass as the, the, the Donbass proletariat, the factory workers, the miners uh, fighting against the liberals and the nationalists in Kiev. Um, so I, that left patriotism certainly pushes them more into a camp that aligns with the government than against it in this respect on, on various uncertain issues. Um, so, you know, the minority of the Russian left tends to be, you know, more West, Western oriented, um, in terms of its influence, it tends to be more theoretical and more interested in Marxist politics or Marxist theory. Um, it also tends to be more university students. So, you know, this divide, I think, um, is one of the things that I think will never actually bring a united left that, that Udosov hopes for. This week, uh, President Trump said that Crimea is Russian because they speak Russian. And a lot of people have been making fun of that here in the United States, saying things like, well, then I guess Mexico belongs to Spain. How... Russian is Crimea based on the fact that they speak Russian? Um, and the people in Crimea, the Russian, ethnic Russians in Crimea tend to see themselves as part of R- Russia, Russian civilization, Russian culture, Russian language. Um, but that's easy to do when you have uh, basically the Tatar population that lived there has been cleansed out. Uh, under Stalin, they were deported in 1944. Uh, they weren't really allowed to come back. They were dispossessed of their property. And even now, the, the Tatar um, people and activists in Crimea are under a lot of pressure and repression uh, for not towing the, the central government, going along with Moscow's line. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even, as, as, a, as someone who's interested in, in Russia, I don't even, every time somebody says, well, they're Russian, my first question is, what, what does that even mean? Um, okay, so you speak the Russian language, but you have people in Moldova that speak the Russian language. You have people in Estonia that speak the Russian language. You have people in Kazakhstan that speak the Russian language. Does that make it Russia? Not necessarily. Um, they may have some cultural affinity, but in terms of its actual sovereignty, 
Uh, that, that's a big question. Um, I mean, the truth of the matter is that Russia annexed Crimea illegally. You know, it, it annexed land in Crimea just like the Israelis annexed land in the West Bank. <laughs> so, you know, I don't really see the political difference there. But I know I'm going to get emails right now from uh, some people who uh, who are going to tell me that, hey, listen, uh, that it, what you just said is showing support for the far right of the Maidan movement that took place that started the Ukrainian uh, war that is taking place right now. It, it, so just so I know what to say, it, just so that I don't have to get that email, could you explain, could you say why that doesn't show that you're supporting a far right wing uh, revolution in the Maidan? Uh, I don't, I mean, look, my, my view on the Maidan is, is very complicated. Um, I, I, I view it as a, uh, an out protest and revolution that came from dissatisfaction of, uh, you know, a segment of the Ukrainian people, uh, particularly outside of Eastern Ukraine, who, I mean, Yanukovych was a incredibly corrupt leader. I mean, if you're going to support Yanukovych, then you might as well support Trump too. Um, he was thrown out. He left. Uh, the circumstances in which he left are quite murky. Um, it certainly was not a constitutional revolution, um, but most revolutions aren't. Uh, they were definitely right-wing elements in that revolution, very prominent ones. And you, you can see now in Ukraine, uh, you have right-wing gangs going on and, and destroying, uh, attacking Roma basically pogroms against Roma, beating up LGBT people, marching in the streets with all sorts of fascist and Nazi regalia. Unfortunately, it seems that Western press is only starting to wake up to this. You have an attempt by the government to, uh, you know, glorify uh, Ukraine's nationalist heroes, many of which engaged in slaughtering Jews and Poles. Um, Yeah, okay, so I don't understand why saying Crimea was annexed illegally puts be in the right-wing government of Ukraine. It doesn't make any sense. The Russians annexed Crimea. Um, I don't understand why that's a pro- why it's a problem to say that. Well, when I get that email, I will forward it to you so you can understand yeah, the crazy. But, but but I should say at the same time, at the same time, you do have legitimate grievances in eastern Ukraine. Right. You do, and and this is the issue that by by saying that um, you know. The, the war in the Donbass is just is simply Russian aggression, which it is. Um, it's to not recognize that there are legitimate questions amongst Eastern people who live in the Donbass that need to be addressed by Kiev. Unfortunately, the propaganda war, and this is why saying I can be pinned as a supporter of Russian nationalists, and unfortunately it, it kind of drives me crazy that American leftists are so daft in this issue, Um there are legitimate questions that need to be addressed by those those people in eastern Ukraine, and the Kievan government isn't doing that. And that is a major problem. I, I Unfortunately, think, hmm? I was just going to say, I think it's a desire for simplicity. Yeah, it's a desire for simplicity, and, and unfortunately, it's also just, you know, if I may say, it's somewhat ignorant. Right. <laughs> We've been speaking with Russia analyst Sean Guillory. See, I'll you get the email. You're going to get it, not me. So Russia analyst Sean Guillory is the uh, host of the weekly Sean's Russia blog podcast where he covers Eurasian politics, history, and culture. Go sh- to Sean's Russia blog Facebook page and share 
his interview that was blocked from boosting by Facebook. He's the author of the Jacobin article, Left in a Corner, that we've been discussing this morning. You can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog, and you can find out more about Sean at Sean'sRussiaBlog.org. One last question for you, Sean, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Actually, it should have been that Maidan question, damn it. You write that uh, left-wing groups that don't directly hearken back Back to Soviet symbolism are younger with members in their late teens and 20s, as in the West, this new generation of young leftists will be crucial for reinvigorating Russia's leftist politics. Some groups are more Western-oriented, emphasizing issues of race, gender, sexuality, for example, and are social democratic in tone. Most engage in media, and a handful are little more than online communities. Is the left then facing a global crisis? Is the left everywhere around the world trying to reinvigorate itself? Is Russia's left, this is more importantly, a microcosm of what is happening to the left globally? Yeah, I do. I think it is. a. It, I think you can make global uh, connections. Um, you know, the situation in all of these places are different. Uh, and this is um, part of my mission in, in trying to, you know, explain you know, give more information about the Russian left is to, one, build solidarity. I mean, Russian leftists are embattled and they want to hook up and connect with their comrades in the West and in the United States and in, in Europe. Um, they have better connections in, in Europe than they do the United States. Um, and, you know, I just actually was in Israel and met with a bunch of uh, Israeli socialists who have the same problem, uh, where they want to connect with uh, American leftists. And uh, they don't have access to them, partially because of BDS, but that's a whole other issue. But I do think it does. And in, 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 in Israel and Russia, they, I think they're you know, experiencing similar circumstances in terms of their access to the political system. Uh, so, you know, how to, I think, collectively bringing people together who are of left orientation globally, you can come together and talk about each other's situation, learn from each other's situation, and maybe collectively trying to find a way out. Sean, I really appreciate you being back here on This Is Hell. We had you on last July. It's been 11 months, and I apologize for that. We're going to have you on much more regularly. I really appreciate you being on the show, and that your writing is fantastic, and people should go share your Facebook post at Sean's Russia blog, where you can find it on Facebook. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Talk to you next time. Take care. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Milk is the world's most controversial food and has been for 5,000 years. We'll find out what those controversies have been and discuss the controversies around milk today in a few minutes when we speak with award-winning author Mark Kurlansky, whose new book is entitled Milk, a 10,000-Year Food Fracas. Mark received the Dayton Literary Peace Prize for his earlier book, Nonviolence, and has won Bon Appetit's Food Writer of the Year Award, the James Beard Award, and the Glenn Fittich Award. It's time to go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on the Facebooks, Twitters, whatnot there, Alex? Uh, first of all, for everyone who bet that Chuck was going to quote that uh, Sean Guillory quote, uh, enough masturbating in the corner, let's embrace the system to the death. Was that easy odds on that one? Uh, that was really easy. You put masturbating in your first. You put it twice in the first paragraph of your Jacobin article. It's going to be on. Actually, the quote that inspired my imagination was: "Many see non-systematic leftists as rejects and losers who secretly jo somewhere and have nothing serious to offer." Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's a pretty good quote. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so this week on Facebook, I shared past guest Amber Ali Frost's Baffler advice column that I read every couple weeks, Your Sorry Ass. Uh, Also, the essay that Elizabeth Rush mentioned on her show last week, which is Aldo Leopold's classic Thinking Like a Mountain. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you know about that? Yeah. I'd heard about it, but yeah, it was pretty interesting. It's actually not that long, too. Um, Also on Facebook, I shared an excerpt from Zoe Samudzi and William Sanderson's book Black is Resistance over at the New Inquiry. And a very good piece on the point of judges uh, for Current Affairs magazine from past guest Brianna Renix. Um, on Twitter, Chuck Elizabeth Rush uh, shared our interview with her, and she called the show fabulous. Really? Do you think we're fabulous? I'm fabulous. Friggin' fabulous. That's uh, one time. That's the first time I've ever heard the show being called fabulous. Uh, thank you, though, Elizabeth. Also, I learned from past guest Elliot Sperber that the suicide rate in the U.S. increased by 24% between 1999 and 2014. Oh, so we don't have to do Twist Off Knowledge Day. Great. Um, also, I want to thank Blank, Black Rose Books in St. Louis for sharing a bunch of our recent interviews. I will have to stop by next time I'm in St. <laughs> Louis trying trying to get uh, out of St. Louis. Yeah. Well, uh, the 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 number one uh, draw to me is St. Louis style pizza, which uses a specific regional processed cheese that they have there that we don't have here. Yeah, and they got great bowling alleys. So I'd be, yeah, we could put put together a day of going to the anarchist bookstore and uh, eating pizza at the bowling alley. <laughs> Anything else? Oh, uh, no, that's it. Do right. you, you want to get into, you can bring up Adam. Oh, no, you tell people. Okay. I uh, just wanted to say that uh, we, if you've been noticing, and you're going to be noticing it soon or very soon on people's shirts, uh, that this hell has a new logo. And we wanted to thank the designer of that logo, Adam Medley. Uh, you can find him on on the internets at adammedley.com and see more of his work and uh, I might say as a plug uh, very reasonable rates it's and time. this is a listener it's time for listener feedback we received this week's first message through Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio and it's from longtime supporter of our show Gorilla Gramophonics Gorilla apparently their first name sends us a link to someone else's Facebook post that says The best hangover cure is being under 25 years of age. I could not disagree more. The very worst hangovers I've ever had were when I was under 25 and I was too stupid to stop drinking. Especially when tripping. You can pound beers while you're experiencing another reality, but when that other universe starts fading away and whatever it is you took starts wearing off, you will suddenly be S-faced and fast. I'm a way better, better drinker now, and especially drinking while dosing. Cough button. Jack also sent us a message via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Jack writes, I have a guest suggestion. See Riley Snorton, author of Black on Both Sides, a racial history of trans identity. Jack adds, you should have the author and their book on the show because This Is Hell has been sitting on the sidelines of the new race-gender culture wars for too long, at which point he leaves a smiling, winking face emoji, which I think is as close to a sarcasm emoticon as you can get. I just didn't want to use the same word twice there. That's why I said the older version. This is definitely up our alley, and that reminds me, there was an article at Truth Out last week about the current disabled movement and the race-gender activist involved and activists involved in that. So it's a trifecta culture war, and I love playing trifecta bets at the track. Speaking of the track, last week, 
I mentioned how I'd always wanted to go behind the scenes at a racetrack and was finally invited by a listener who owns a small stake in a horse. Not a small horse stake because that's disgusting, but I couldn't go because I thought I was going to help work on the new interview desk for our new studio. Instead, I immediately fell asleep and didn't wake up until about seven hours later. Nonetheless, listener John, who owns that small stake, Writes to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Hey, Chuck, I hope the desk turned out well. Thanks for the encouraging words during This Is Hell office hours. They worked as my horse came in second. It was a great race. My horse had to not had to hold off the third-place finisher while almost catching the winning horse. In his last two races, he's finished first and second. There will be more opportunities later this summer to join me at the track. I'm not mentioning the name of the horse because I'm not too sure if John wants me to, but it's a great name. And when you hear it, you'll be like, oh, man, I'll, I'll put money on that horse. As you are a horse race fan, would you have any interest in interviewing one of the jockeys? It wouldn't be as serious an interview as you actually do, but it might be fun. Take care, John. Well, now that we will have access to studios 24-7, let's make that a firm maybe. Also on last week's show, Alex told me how someone had contacted him on Twitter asking us to have the linguist George Lakoff on the show but we already had him on, and I recounted how I remember the interview not going all that great, probably because of me. Let's say it was me. But Ivar writes, Hi, Chuck. I hope you are doing well. I hope you were saying just last... I heard you were saying last week that you were not happy with your only previous interview with George Lakoff, but this article hits the nail on the head about he who must not be named. Best Ivar. Ivar then sends a Guardian article from this week, which was headlined... Trump has turned words into weapons, and he's winning the linguistic war. From Spygate to fake news, Trump is using language to frame and win debates, and the press operates like his marketing agency. So maybe, you know, we should get George back on the show, because the other linguist we have had on the show is no longer doing weekend interviews, which is another reason we need to get our studio up and running again. Besides, the other linguist said that we're sanity in talk radio. So clearly, Noam Chomsky's gone insane. We got a guest suggestion sent to us via email at chuck at thisishell.com. Robin writes, as you cover the Trump administration's cruel efforts to separate children from their families, I wanted to suggest speaking with leaders from the Families Belong Together Coalition, including I. Jen Poo, who is director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance here in Chicago, and Jess morales Rocketto political director, National Domestic Worker Alliance in New York. I, I, Jen, and Jess will be leading a vigil this Sunday, that's tomorrow, at the Ursula Border Patrol Processing Center in South McAllen, Texas, on Father's Day to protest this inhumane practice. Details are in the advisory that I have attached. Thanks, Robin. No, thank you, Robin. We reached out to iGen last year, but thanks for reminding us, and we'll try to get her and Jess on this time. Uh, We got an artist suggestion from Ron, who is the artist who he suggests for our upcoming show at our anniversary slash listener appreciation slash art show party coming up next month on Saturday, July 21st. We've got a couple of the bands booked. We have, I believe, one, two, three artists already lined up. We need a couple more bands, a couple more artists. Hi, Chuck. I heard your call for art. I'm still working on the We Kill Everything project. I took a break attempting to write a book. About a year ago, a writer by the name Travis Deal wrote the wonderful, this wonderful interview, We Kill Everything, Ron Pollard, 
at objective, that's O-B-J-E-K-T-I-V dot N-O. Deal rights of Ron's art in the uh, photograph crucifix slash strip mine and illuminated cross beams from a forested hill above the sodium bulbs of the town below. The next hill over is ragged with terraces, heavenly aspirations and earthly greed side by side. It is the sort of irony that makes the world the world. Throughout Ron Pollard's photo essay, We Kill Everything, largely shot in late 2016, the Colorado suburbs render up several such contradictions. Prison golf, fracking field residential development, crucifix cell tower. Yet the more of these juxtapositions that arise, the clearer it becomes that such antithetical uses aren't always at cross-purposes. In fact, the broad cultural spheres that Pollard explores from religion and consumerism to industry and art not only overlap but seem to make each other possible. In this light, Pollard's coolly architectural shot of a 1,800-car parking garage at the National Renewable Energy Resources Laboratory makes perfect sense. This is America, after all. And where there is no pure world, there can be no pure photograph. And Ron is going to be part of our art show. We Kill Everything will be featured at our art show. He's sending us prints, and you can actually win those prints as a prize in the raffle during our anniversary slash listener appreciation party slash art show slash whatever else. Music show, I guess. Food fest. I don't know. On Saturday, July 21st, taking place at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon here in Chicago. We currently have feelers out with a few other artists and have uh, many that have... Uh, this one makes like really disturbing embroidery. She, she's confirmed. But if you are an artist and want to be a part of the second annual This Is Hell Art Show happening during the third annual 20th anniversary party, please get in touch. Just email me and include images of your art at chuckatthisishell.com. Or if you know of somebody who is an artist whose art you really appreciate and you think would work perfectly with a This Is Hell party, send it to me at chuckatthisishell.com. And don't forget to send either images or links to the artist's work. That's listener feedback, and this is Hell, and this week's question from Hell is, what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? What undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? I'll reply is read on air following our next guest here on This is Hell. I hear your microphone open. Yeah, speaking of our next guest, yes. I am uh, calling and calling and calling and getting a voicemail. So uh, we could give it a couple more minutes. Um, also, I have, I can just pull up another interview if you wanted to be ready with another interview. Unless you wanted to just ask Helena if she wants to be on, and then it'll give us some time to maybe get back in contact with Mark. Uh, I could try. That might be sort of hard to flip around. All right. Well, let's just see. Let's uh, well, yeah, try something out there. Uh, try, to, try Helena. See if she'll work. And then if that won't, then we'll have to play an interview. And you know how I hate playing old interviews. Anyway. This week's question from hell is, what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? I'll reply is right on air following our next guest or if we play an interview. Our favorite one's a copy of a book we will be featuring later this month, Assad Hyder's Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Again, the question from hell is, what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? 
Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during after our next guest or interview to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our content upon your neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. Some of you are already suggesting local radio stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not The Media radio network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local radio station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. Or better yet, email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, supposedly, the history of the most controversial of all foods, milk. How there is an alternative to globalization and that alternative is localization. And during a singular moment of truth, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his reflection. All that plus will tell you what's happening on this week's exclusive Patreon podcast for Patreon patrons of This Is Hell, which you can hear by signing up as a supporter on Patreon. Uh, the question You also do the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to some twist-off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is is hell. Alex, so what's the situation, sir? Yep. Alex is on the phone. See, this is why I want to have two producers so I can have two people converse. Hey, sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, no on Mark? Nope. And what about Helena? Uh, I'm not getting any answer. Okay. Yeah, uh, I have lined up a super depressing Ted Genoways interview on pork, if you're interested, or if there's any other food sort of thing that you want me to cover, or I could play just uh, something else you liked recently. No, do the pork one. That's good, because if we're not going to be doing milk, we might as well be doing pork, right? Uh, you want me to play that now? Yeah, don't put them next to each other on your dish, especially if you want to stay kosher. So tell people what this interview is. Okay. Hi, everyone. It's producer Alex playing an interview because we are having a little bit of trouble getting a guest on the line that we thought was going to be on the line. Oh, my God. I put so much research into this friggin' milk book, too. Uh, yeah, I'm just calling. I've only got been... 75 questions for him, by the way. Too. Uh, I mean, you want to ask me some of the questions? <laughs> yeah, here, I'll give you one right now. A random one right in the middle. Uh, have we chosen cow's milk simply because it is the animal that supplies the most milk? Is the decision to consume cow's milk more based on its relatively easy and large supply rather than any health benefits? Alex? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Duh. Actually, that's a very good question. I wish I wish we could hear the answer to that. <laughs> uh, someone's not picking up their phone. Um, oh, right. but one of the things that he disproves in here is, you ever, have you ever heard the story of how uh, cheese was accidentally invented by somebody storing milk in a goat in a bladder, uh, in, a, in an animal's bladder and then they were walking and over time it hardened and turned into cheese and that's always been the story of how cheese was invented totally apocryphal just so you know uh next up we're going to be playing an <laughs> interview with uh author ted genoways who explores all the lives swallowed by america's pork industry this was from uh 2016 this is when we were uh advertising or advertising broadcasting in the evening so uh, it was on a Wednesday evening at like nine o'clock, we were doing a one-hour show here from uh, NUR. Also, uh, we, if you're listening live on the radio or on the podcast, we might have to uh, skip out of this just a couple minutes early. But if you're listening, actually, the podcast, I will put the whole thing in. But if you're listening live on the radio, uh, we might have to. Ditch Why, how out. long is this? It's fifty minutes. Oh, okay. So we might have to ditch out uh, for the live show. But if you're listening and you uh, want to catch the end of it, just subscribe to the podcast and uh, you'll be able to find it. Okay, here's Ted Genoways, everyone. Are you? having maybe eating some breakfast sausage or some bacon right now 
Well, chew it up real good and swallow right now, because after our next conversation, it may be the last processed meat you eat. 2014 winner of the National Press Club Award and James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, Ted Genoways returns to This Is Hell. He has a new book out entitled The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ted. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back on the show. Uh, we had you on one of our uh, one couple of years ago, 2013. We did shows on Wednesday night. Ted joined us for the entire hour one evening, and it was a fantastic interview. So as soon as I heard that this book, was, as soon as Alex heard that this book was coming out, we did what we could to get you back on the show. You start your book with an awful story of Maria Lopez, who was working the Hormel line back in 2004, when, as you write, uh, the pace of work had always been steady, but the speed of the line had jumped recently from a thousand hops per hour to more than 1,100. Lopez was having trouble keeping up. Her co-worker reached for one of the other pork shoulders. She rushed to clear the cutting area, and her fingers slipped toward the saw blade. Lopez snatched her hand back, but it was too late. Her index finger dangled by a flap of skin. The bone cut clean through. She screamed as blood spurted and covered her workstation. She went and got medical attention, ended up having to get several surgeries that shortened her fingers, but that day on the line, again, as you write, while she sprinted to the nurse's station and was taken to the Fremont Area Medical Center, while she waited finger-wrapped in the emergency room for the surgeon to drive in from Omaha, the cut line at Hormel continued to run. That hour, like every hour, without interruption, the plant processed 1,100 hogs, their carcasses butchered into parts and marketed as Cure 81 hams or Black Label bacon. The scraps collected and ground up to make Spam and Little Sizzler's breakfast sausages. Her co-workers were instructed by floor supervisors to wash the station of her blood, but the line never stopped. Look, I've never had much faith in Hormel products. They're low cost. They're low quality, in my opinion. So is Hormel low-hanging fruit when it comes to investigating factory farms for suspicious health standards, if not health violations? Well, there may be some truth to that, but I, to me, what, what made Hormel an important company to look at as a case study is that they they are perhaps the vanguard of the new standard for pork production in the country. They, starting just a little over a decade ago, got an, a special exemption from the USDA to be part of, to, to bring all of their cut and kill operations into a pilot program that would allow production lines to run as fast as possible to see how that would affect food safety. So when you look at what's happening at Hormel, what you're really seeing is what the possible future for the entire industry may be. So how did it affect worker safety and food safety? Well, that's that's just the thing, is that if you ask the USDA, um, the, the line is that, um, that they're primarily concerned with food safety, that everything is still within parameters, that there's nothing to worry about. But what um, the, the USDA's uh, Office of Inspector General um, said just last year was that just looking at the food safety issue, that having allowed five plants to enter into this pilot program and to test unlimited line speeds, that three out of the five plants wound up among the 10 worst food violators in the entire country. And that's out of 616 plants. Um, 
hard for me to understand why you would take the worst plants and make them the model um, going forward. And then, as you suggest, uh, it's not just about food safety. Um, it's also about worker safety and about environmental safety. And the effects in those other areas um, have been devastating. But does the industry really care about that, or are they only looking at how much food they can get on the? I mean, are, are, is the USDA considering worker safety, or are they pushing that off to OSHA, and then OSHA is looking into that? That's right. So the USDA says, uh, you know, worker safety is not our area. That's OSHA. Um, but the, the the simple fact of the matter is that um, that line speed is determined by the USDA. And so even if OSHA says this is putting uh, workers at, at risk, there's very little that OSHA can do directly to affect the way that, that the plants are run. And the thing is that this is really common sense as far as I'm concerned, that if you are increasing line speeds steadily, and you look at a company like Hormel, their line speed has increased by 50% in less than a decade while the workforce has grown by only about 10 to 20%, that tells you that everybody is working much, much faster. And that's in a, in a situation where you're working with extremely sharp instruments, where you're working with sometimes with saws, and, and the, the risk uh, should be obvious, I would think. So um, the government selects how, much, how many hogs you can process an hour. So is this, ready, get ready for this, Ted, is this a problem of government interference? Well, this is, in my <laughs> opinion, a, a problem of not nearly enough government interference. Okay. I mean, the, 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 the situation has always been that, that line speed is determined um, by the rate of inspection that ever since the institution of federal inspectors um, following the publication of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and the, the governmental reforms that came after that, that you couldn't run the line faster than inspectors could inspect each carcass and approve it. What this experimental program is doing is saying, um, we're going to allow these companies to self-inspect um, and we will do spot checking of their self-inspection to assure that it is uh, accurate. And so what you're really getting is reduced government inspection, reduced government involvement. And, and what the, the inspector general found was that uh, when you reduce the number of federal inspectors and hand that over to the private companies, that surprise, surprise, the, the, you know, the amount of food safety violations go way up. But I would assume that this would lead to more profits for places like Hormel. And as we all know, Ted, trickle-down economics always works. So I'd assume that the workers who are working in these processing facilities for Hormel now are being rewarded with higher pay and are maybe even becoming uh, attracting at least more skilled workers. So are these profits turning into better working or at least better pay for the workers? Uh, certainly not. Um, and, and, you know, the Hormel's profits are way up. The shareholders, um, you know, have seen a huge jump in the the value of of Hormel stock. But over the same time, um, the the 
pay for workers has remained static. Um, you talk to the workers um, at a place like the, the, the flagship plant in Austin, Minnesota, and they often refer to this penny-a-year increase because uh, the, the starting uh, salary for, for workers at a place like QPP, Quality Pork Processors, which is the, the cut-and-kill operation there, uh, the starting uh, hourly wage for someone is 30 cents higher than it was 30 years ago. And so obviously, you know, with the cost of living increase and all, all of these sorts of things, the, the buying power um, for a worker who's starting at, at Hormel or at QPP now is much lower than it was a generation ago, even though the company is far more profitable and um, and passing along far more profit to the shareholders. How much of that fault is due to the workers' unwillingness, maybe, or lack of, I don't know, is how much of that is due to the fact that workers are not organizing? They are not making a union. How much of that is due to a lack of a labor movement among the workers, that it's their fault? Yeah. Well, so it's a, it's a, the way that the union interacts with the company is central to the, to the whole issue. Um, the, the workers who, who were at Hormel um, used to have one of the strongest unions in the country. But when they went out on strike in 1985, a long strike that stretched into 86, um, and eventually were undercut by the, the union leadership in D.C., uh, essentially the, the local union there in Austin was hobbled forever. And they just don't have the same uh, clout with, with the leadership at Hormel that they used to. And so the union is less active. Uh, the workers are less likely to participate in union activity. And then there's also the fact that uh, as the, the company has, has tended to hire more immigrant labor, um, there are cultural differences that, that keep the workforce from effectively organizing. So how much of this is our fault for wanting food that has a low cost? Or is this not about our demand for food that's at a low cost? Is this is the success of Hormel uh, more just due to poverty? Well, I, I think that that there's no question that when the housing crisis and then the recession kicked in in 06, 07, Hormel saw a record jump in the sales of Spam. Um, and it makes perfect sense that a product that was originally introduced during the Great Depression um, and has seen its greatest sales uh, during recessions ever since, um, it, it, it is a staple of of times of economic downturn. It's inexpensive meat at a time when you can't afford to buy something better. But I don't think that that means that um, that the company um, is justified in mistreating its workers or certainly placing them at risk. And, you know, I, I think it's, a, it's an open question how much cost it would actually add to even a low-end product like that um, to simply institute higher wages and safer conditions. 
So when we choose convenience over quality or low cost over quality, we are choosing having worse working conditions for those employed at processing facilities. We are choosing lower wages for those people. We are choosing food that is of lower quality for us and has such an impact on the market as a whole that these and the related problems associated with factory farming spreads. But not all of us can spend more money on meat, that we cannot afford quality over convenience. So how much of the problem of our food supply is is the fact that it caters to those on limited budgets who live in or near or below poverty levels. How much is the problem with our food supply the need to cater to those who are in poverty? Well, I think there's there's some of that to be sure, and especially um, not just Americans living in poverty, but but as these companies are trying to sell their product into other parts of the world that have different standards of living. Um, and so as they're attempting to make this uh, a global product that is profitable for them, uh, regardless of what part of the world they're selling in, um, yes, it, it becomes a system that is that is really geared toward volume and toward you know, value, if you can if you can think of it in that way, as opposed to quality and um, and certainly, it, it disregards things such as as you know workers' rights and environmental safety. You know those things are in, regarded as being sort of incidental to to the business model. Um, so I I think that that's that's certainly part of it. Um, but that but the conundrum of this right is is certainly that that. Simply going to the grocery store and saying, "Well, what what I'm going to do is buy, you know, organic, uh, welfare-approved pork, and I'm I'm uh, going to eat less of it, and I'm going to individually reduce a little bit of of my impact." While that is an important piece of things, it's not the overall solution. What what we really need here, more than anything else, is is government intervention and and a little bit of of political courage from the the top to say what we need is a system that is totally revamped. We are speaking with Ted Genoways. His new book is The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. And man, I really love the cover. The jacket of your book is really fantastic. Um, So... uh, we you were just wanted to ask you about this whole situation with what you were saying about how you could possibly just uh, get better food, pay better, not have as much meat. I know I'm going to get an email from somebody who's going to say, see, vegetarianism is the answer. But I know that right. there are problems, farming, uh, farmer, wor- farm worker condition problems on vegetable farms as well. So Absolutely. is vegetarianism the answer? I, you know, I don't think it's as simple as that. I, you know, I think what what the real answer is is trying to find a system that is sustainable at smaller sizes, from farm to production to distribution. Um, and and I realize that that is a challenging thing as our population booms, but the reality is that that the problems really uh, come into effect regardless of the industry, as you say, when you start trying to do things at certain scales. And so you end up, um, by by virtue of trying to, uh, to go large scale, you end up specializing 
and you you do things like taxing the soil, which requires more fertilizer, which requires um, more pesticides and more herbicides, and which has the environmental impact. But as you say, I mean, all those things, um, you, you know, get sprayed onto the vegetables, and and the impact on on the, the workers in the field who are picking lettuce that has been sprayed with lots of toxic chemicals that they are getting on their hands and inhaling as they're working, you know, that's a problem too. And so it's it's not as simple as saying this food product is good and that food product is bad. It's, it's really about uh, trying to take a, a, a bigger view of things and find ways of, of growing food for a large population that is sustainable long term. When we were just discussing about how people might just want to go vegetarian or people might just want to see their solution is shopping at Whole Foods, uh, can all of us who are not poor simply say, this is a problem, this is a poor people problem, I go to Whole Foods? How much does the ability of the middle class to choose better food actually undermine the campaign for higher quality food and better working conditions for food workers? Well, it, again, it's a complex question. I mean, I to me, I think it's it is good for people to show that there is a market for high quality products. That people are willing to spend a little bit extra money and consume a little bit less in order to improve their own health and the health of their families um, in terms of the, the quality of the food that they're getting, but also hopefully reduce the impact a bit of the agricultural practices that produce that food. And as the industry sees that there's a growing number of people doing that sort of thing, that does put economic pressure on them to reform. My concern is that that also creates a situation where there's a tendency to demonize the poor. And that always worries me because I don't want people to come away from this thinking, well, you know, if I go and buy a grass-fed burger, um, then I'm, you know, morally superior to the person who's at the McDonald's drive-thru. Often our food choices are constrained by our economic income. And what we really need is, as I said before, leadership that encourages a system that that produces high-quality and healthful food for everybody. Uh, we were mentioning before we were talking about union organizing, and I had a follow-up question to it, and I just jumped to the next question. But how much of the degradation of food quality and, well, not just worker conditions, but food quality, how much do you think that is caused by the weakening of the labor movement when it comes to the processing industry? I think it's I think it's undeniable. Um, I mean, I think you know, it, it, every single line speed increase has to be negotiated with the union, and there there are systems engineers who come through and check the line speed to make sure that it is being enforced, and the the company is always pushing for the line to go a little bit faster. The union is always exerting some resistance. But the reality is that, that these days, the union resistance usually takes the form of asking for additional positions uh, to be created on the line in order to meet that higher speed as opposed to actually resisting the speed increase. And I think it's, it, that's directly due to the fact that the union just doesn't have 
nearly the same amount of, of bargaining power that it did a generation ago. The great thing about your book is not just the background information, not just the context, but you tell the stories of people who actually work in these facilities. Uh, you mentioned this gentleman by the name of Matthew Garcia, who is working at the Brain Machine on the kill floor, where he puts in a high-pressure air hose into the head of the <clears throat> hog to blow out its brains so they can use the brains for some product. And in the air, there just seems to be a mist in the air of this kind of brain-like matter just everywhere. And eventually, all the people who uh, this Matthew Garcia works with and Matthew Bar- Garcia get neurological disorders that uh, doctors have difficulty diagnosing. But Matthew Garcia is a name you use to protect the anonymity of the real person who is affected. You write, Matthew Garcia is the name I've uh, given him to shield him from immigration and customs enforcement, but I don't know his real name anyway. All I know is the name on his driver's license, his I-9s and ITINs, his medical records and workers' comp claims. All I know is the name on his Social Security card, but that name belongs to someone else. Someone in Texas, in prison or worse, someone with a suitably Hispanic name who sold his information or had it stolen from him. There is no Matthew Garcia in Austin, Minnesota, working at Hormel. And if you go looking, you won't find him. So how much is the meat processing industry dependent on undocumented labor? And did that increase when all of a sudden they got this ability to be deregulated? Well, and that last point is just it. So, uh... So it starts with the union being weakened, um, and, and in Austin, it's especially in Austin, Minnesota, where Hormel is headquartered. It's especially stark because you have this strike that ends in 1986. One of the provisions of the of the strike agreement, the ending uh, of the strike agreement, is that uh, the union will get preferential hiring. Uh, for positions as they become available in the plant, that the scab workers who were hired during the strike will not be put out of positions, but as they leave, their their union counterparts will be hired back into the plant. Instead, within a matter of months, Hormel said, now this half of the plant, we're going to call a different company. And that company is called Quality Pork. They, uh, they pay less. They don't have a contract with the union, and though that's all the equipment that we purchased and placed there, though it's within the four walls of the Hormel plant, it's a different company as of today. And so, and once they started hiring workers into uh, QPP, overwhelmingly the workers that they hired in the late 80s into the early 90s were undocumented Hispanic workers primarily coming from Mexico. And before long, there was a kind of informal uh, route of bringing workers from Mexico into to Austin and other parts of the, the Hormel supply chain. Hormel is not unique in this by any means. Um, the the meatpacking industry is, is all overwhelmingly run by, by undocumented immigrant labor. But certainly, once the line speed starts to increase, um, and once Hormel gets the special uh, arrangement that allows them to run their lines faster, the immigrant labor becomes a kind of ideal workforce for, for that kind of corporate leadership because they're not in any position to complain. They don't have the union backing, 
but also when they get injured, um, they're they're far less likely to report those injuries to workers' comp. And even when they did report those injuries, as was the case with Matthew Garcia and some of his co-workers, then the company came to them and said, we have questions about your immigration status. And many of those workers, fearing that they would be deported, left the company and left the state of Minnesota. And so their workers' comp claims uh, left with them, allowing the company to get out of their obligations. Wow. You know, I've heard in uh, northwestern uh, lower peninsula of Michigan, since the immigration debate and uh, real hostility towards uh, undocumented workers here in the U.S., uh, and not just undocumented workers, but just a hostility towards brown people, to be honest, uh, there's a... uh, uh, up in uh, northwestern Michigan, where Traverse City is, where there's a huge cherry production area, uh, tens of thousands of bushels of cherries, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, were left just by the side of the road. Uh, one of the farmers was trying to show how it was just being wasted because he couldn't harvest it, because he couldn't get in the undocumented workers for a temporary uh, point, you know, or documented workers for a small period of time, giving them a visa so they can work there. Uh, so he was incredibly upset about it and the profit, uh, profiting in uh, the cherry industry in Michigan was hurting for a little bit, or at least that summer it was. So how much is the meat processing uh, industry hurting when it comes to restrictions on immigration like the border fence? Or, I mean, are they are they uh, doing any kind of campaign financing to push for immigration reform or to stop immigration reform? Well, they, they prefer, they would like to see immigration reform that would allow them to continue to take advantage of all of the positive aspects of the workforce that they've assembled. But they, they, it's a kind of high-wire act for them because they don't want the, the immigration reform to be so sweeping that it, that it empowers the workforce too much. An interesting case study, um, there, were, there, there are a couple of companies. One of them is QPP that I mentioned before in Austin. Another is a company called Albert Lee Select Foods, both of them are custom packers, as they call them, for Hormel. And they, in 2009, were investigated by Immigration and Customs Enforcement and told that they needed to get some of the undocumented workers on their payroll off by a certain time. What they did um, was strike an arrangement with the Karen Organization of Minnesota, um, which caters to refugees from Burma. Um, and and brought in um, hundreds of these workers from St. Paul to replace the, the Hispanic workers. The, the, the company thought that this was going to be the perfect workforce. They were still, um, you know, culturally unfamiliar with Minnesota. They didn't speak the language very well. They didn't have a history of working in meatpacking um, and, and had no ties to those local communities. But... Um, they had political refugee status. So they weren't subject to the same sorts of, of possibility of deportation that the, the undocumented workers from Mexico and Guatemala that they had been working having at the plant. The problem, though, um, that where they miscalculated was that these workers uh, from Burma um, had been very organized in their political um opposition in Burma for generations, and that transposed very well to organizing and meatpacking. 
and they they managed to unionize uh, Albert Lee's Select Foods in a fairly short period of time um, and make all sorts of demands on on the company. And so this is the sort of situation that that Hormel and all of these meatpacking companies are trying to avoid. They're trying to figure out how to find a workforce that will work hard, work fast, but will also, you know, not report injuries, will not file worker comp claims, won't ask for pay increases. Um, and so the immigration reform that they're pressing for is at best a half measure, and it's certainly one where they're they're pushing the cause of self-interest. So there's the shadowy world of the workers who are on the floor, on the kill floor in meat processing facilities. You write there's also no Emiliano Ballesta or Miriam Angeles or any of the other Hispanic workers who stood side by side with Matthew Garcia at the head table because seemingly everyone working at QPP in the first decade of the new century had a fake name and false papers with a phony address. And not just the people on the kill floor, quality pork processors is simply another way of saying Hormel and QPP's corporate headquarters in Dallas is just an accounting firm, a mailing address, and a tax shelter in a poured concrete office park along the LBJ freeway. And if you leaf through the phone book in Austin, Tech, Austin Minnesota, uh, you can find a listing for Kelly Wadding, the CEO of QPP. But if you drive there, you'll find no house, no such address. Prior to your investigation, did you know that meat processing, of all things, was such a shadowy world? I didn't think that it was this shadowy. Um, no. Uh, you know, I knew a little bit about this universe because uh, my grandfather had worked in meatpacking in Omaha uh, when he was young. Um, and when I was a book editor, I had worked on a couple of books that had to do with the meatpacking industry. But everything that I knew about the world of meatpacking predated that, that sort of bright line that was created by the Hormel workers' strike in 85 and 86. And what I hadn't understood until coming in, into doing this research was that the whole industry had recalibrated in a way to to make sure that there was there would never be a major strike like that again and so they everything that they do is aimed at at trying to disempower the workforce in order to keep production rolling um, but it also means that they are trying to forge alliances with with government with with uh, local officials, and it does create a, a sort of shadowy world that they operate in. How much do the workers who are affected by, for instance, Matthew Garcia, who got sick, or the co-workers next to him, how quickly did they suspect their environment as the cause of their illness? Did you hear any of them making excuses, dismissing links to the work environment out of a necessity to rationalize their the way that they make money? Well, um, so the workers themselves had very little communication with each other as they became ill um, and didn't know what was, you know, what was happening to them, much less what was happening more broadly. Um, I, and I would say that the company, to some extent, exploited that lack of communication among the workers because it allowed them to say, well, we didn't have uh, 
that sort of report coming back to us. But the reality is that they have a plant occupational nurse who was recognizing a pattern among the workers. They had reports back from the Austin Medical Center uh, that that there were a number of people who were working um, in the plant and and suffering from similar symptoms. And when the Minnesota Department of Health finally came and did a study and said, you know, show us where each of these people works in the plant, they all worked side by side. And, you know, it would seem to me that it, that it doesn't take very much of a sleuthing ability to say that if there are all these people who work side by side who are suddenly showing uh, the same symptoms of a, a severe injury, uh, that that there's something happening within the plant. But yes, in fact, uh, initially the company questioned uh, whether it was actually coming from inside the plant or not, and and passed along that doubt to the insurance company in an effort to uh, sort of collectively duck the, the, the obligations of paying out the workers' comp. So we have the shadowy world of the ownership. We have the shadowy world of the employees. Uh, how shadowy, how covert does a meet uh, processing facility have to be to get into a community? Because in your book, you write about how many communities are very upset about having meat processing facilities in their area because of the impact on their environment. Yeah, well, and that's true. The the, the environmental impact is, is considerable. I mean, just starting from the fact that if, if you have a plant that moves in, you've got, you've got sewage demands that, uh, from both the water intake and, and the wastewater uh, you've got huge power demands, um, all of those sorts of things. And typically, the plants are set up outside of municipalities so that they are not subject to local ordinances, but they draw from the, the local uh, utilities. So there's often then, you know, a, a deal that needs to be struck with, with the city government in order to get that sort of arrangement. And and what it very often is, is saying, you know, we'll pay into the local economy over time um, if you allow us to come in and make all these demands at first. And of course, what that does is put the, these communities permanently at disadvantage, right? You're, you're, you, even if you're unhappy with, with what's happening at the, at the packing plant, you, you, if you're going to sever that relationship, you're you're saying that you're going to take a financial hit, and very few politicians, even at the local level, are willing to do such a thing. Yeah, and that's really the uh, too, the sad part is that we do not have uh, any kind of political motivation to try to fix this problem. Have you had any reaction from Hormel? Because I would be uh, suing your ass off and doing everything I could to make certain that this book was not published. <laughs> well, um, Hormel, I, I have uh, reported on Hormel for um, and, and published on Hormel for over three years now. Um, in that time, I've never had direct communication with them, aside from the very initial conversations where I asked them for access to any of their plants. Um, and they have never issued any sort of public statements about anything I've published. And as I say, it's been coming out for years in, in pieces, and the book has been out for a little bit now. 
and the company has issued no response. I think Hormel's usual strategy is to say um, that they think that in, in a saturated media environment that it is so difficult to capture the attention of consumers that this thing sort of thing is not going to have an impact and that rather than engage with it directly, they just pretend that it's not happening. You also talk about PETA going undercover and discovering a lot of uh, animal abuse, horrible working conditions, sexual abuse, actual sexual abuse of animals. Um, and it's this all in the case of a farm that's run by a Lynn Becker. And folks, you got to get this book. I mean, it's yeah, there's a lot of disgusting stuff in it, but you better know what's going on in your food unless you want to uh, not know and just be kind of goofy. How much of the worker or animal abuse that takes place on Hormel contracted uh, suppliers facilities do you think is caused by the demands of Hormel, not by some character flaw of the contract farm workers themselves? Do you think that their character turn, becomes this character because of Hormel? Or do you think it's just, hey, you're working in a kill floor? Crazy stuff happens. Well, I think um, in that particular facility, um, which is a, a giant breeding facility, a, a sow barn um, with about 6,000 breeding sows in Iowa, um, you've, you've got a facility there where you're placing thousands of sows in gestation crates, and there's been a lot of attention on gestation crates recently. And so people may know these are crates that are essentially hog-sized containers. Um, they're, they're not large enough for the, the sows to turn around. Most of them are barely large enough for them to stand up. Um, and the sows, once they are artificially inseminated, are kept in those crates for 114 days straight. Um, it is at the end of that 114 days that they are gotten up and moved to another barn where they will give birth and will briefly uh, nurse the piglets. You have to imagine what the attitude of an animal that's been caged for 114 days is when someone comes along and pokes it with a stick and tells it, now is the time for you to get up and move. Um, and so the workers the, the workers themselves are put in, a, in just a terrible situation um, because they are being faced with, with aggressive and angry animals that they then have to pick up and move. And the animals bite, they kick, they do their best to, to push the workers against the gates and, and injure them. Um, and the workers often respond with violence. And in the case of this, this particular barn, all it took was one person with a kind of sadistic attitude um, to really kind of gain control of the workforce and convince everybody that this was the only way to deal with the animals and to kind of egg them on and, and get them uh, sort of moving down the wrong path. So it's a, um, but, but as you say, all of this comes from the, the whole notion of, line speed and trying to produce a lot of meat really fast because it's it really is this this thing of we've got to produce as many piglets as possible we've got to get them 
fattened and ready for market as soon as possible. And everything is an artificial environment. And when you get these artificial systems, unusual and unexpected things start to happen. And to me, it seems unfair that a worker who has been spending a whole shift dealing with angry animals um, and often at physical risk, when he loses his temper, he faces criminal charges. But the people who created those conditions do not. Two things that we've been reporting on and complaining about since we started airing the show in 1996 are uh, deregulation, and the other is the overconcentration or centralization of any market into just a few big players. How much of the problem then, when it comes to food safety, quality, worker safety, how many of those challenges are related to the overconcentration or centralization of the market? Because if one company's decision, one par- company's marketing strategy, like Cormel, can have such an impact, it must not only be integral to the market, but the market would have to depend on that economy for its overall well-being. So how much of the problem is just centralization? That's sort of at at the core of all of this, because uh, it would be much easier for small producers who offer alternatives to compete in the market if the market weren't so centralized. And because it is centralized and those few uh, producers have such uh, sway in the marketplace, they are very much able to uh, to keep the, the smaller producers from competing um, at the farm level, um, from competing uh, at, at the production level, but also keep them from being able to distribute their, their product um, and to compete against these large producers. So it, it, which leads to your other point that what, what, is really required is government intervention to say we need to level the playing field here and not just in the interest of business fairness but in the interest of consumer safety in the interest of worker safety and environmental safety and uh this is the the role of government after all is to make sure that, that the citizens interests are protected you know one of the things i was thinking about was uh I really don't like hot dogs. I like bratwurst, Thuringer. I like a lot of sausages, but I really don't like hot dogs. But I do like a hot dog if, like, I'm at Wrigley Field and I've had, like, four old styles in me. All of a sudden, a hot dog with mustard sounds delicious. But otherwise, they're pretty disgusting. But I was watching the show the other day, and there, uh, I think it was America's Test Kitchen or something. I can't remember what the hell the show was. But it, they were talking about how uh, they were doing taste tests in comparison and quality of the meat of hot dogs. And the guy was saying, look... Just buy a kosher hot dog. If you buy a kosher hot dog, it is so much better than everything else. So, Ted, what if all meat processing facilities had strict kosher or even halal codes that they followed? Would that mean uh, then we would have much safer facilities and much healthier food? I'm I'm sorry to say that I, I you know there some of the the worst violations, especially of of worker rights, have have occurred in in such facilities. It, it's it's no it's no way of of judging and um and and this is just the thing is that I I wish it, it, desperately that it were as simple as telling people look for this on the label, look for that, um and you'll be supporting something headed in the right direction. The reality is that while we as individual consumers can make health choices about the kind of food that we want to feed our families and ourselves, 
um, if we're talking about trying to affect larger change to improve the way that the food is produced and the way that people who are producing that food are treated, it's we need to do that at the ballot box, not at the grocery store. So, wait, Ted, I think you're telling me that I can't become a Jewish, Muslim, or vegan because that doesn't solve the problem? Well, I, as I say, it may solve some of the problems for you personally, but <laughs> what I what I would like to see is... More religion in my life? Is that what you're getting at? <laughs> what I would like to see is sort of a broader view of things where we're not just trying to improve uh, our own food, we're trying to improve everyone's food, and we're not just trying to improve the, the bottom line for us at the grocery store, but trying to improve the lives of all the people who feed us. So if uh, the next time the economy goes down, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, Hormel, I believe you're, uh, you said that Hormel is uh, also makers of Campbell's Soup, that you've always heard the thing about the Campbell's Soup idea when it comes to stock investment, and that as soon as the economy tanks, you're supposed to invest in Campbell's Soup because uh, that stock will usually go up. So the next time the economy tanks, are you going to start uh, uh, investing in things like Hormel because they make spam? Well, they've always said uh, that 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 Hormel um, products and spam in particular are a great indicator of of where the economy stands, and the the sales of spam in particular go way up when the economy's down. And th- there are all kinds of people out there on those sort of CNBC shout shows where you have somebody like Jim Cramer who is telling you that. While the economy's down, you need to invest in in these kinds of companies. And you know, for people who have money to invest in the market, uh, I'm sure it is a way to make uh, a quick buck. But again, um, I, there's something I, I would think that people would find sort of uh, morally questionable about making a buck um, on, in a down economy on the backs of the people who are forced to work in a system that that is working against their interests. Instead, I, I, I would say that the economy could be boosted by um, raising the wages, improving the conditions for those workers so that they have greater buying power and can participate in the economy. We have been speaking with 2014 winner of the National Press Club Award and James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, Ted Genoways. Ted has a new book out entitled The Chain, Farm Factory and the Fate of Our Food. And one aspect that, I mean, there's a lot of this book that we didn't cover today, but uh, the history of Hormel and the history of Spam is a really, really disturbing part of this book. I'd put it at about 27th on the disturbing things in this book because there are a lot of disturbing things in this book. Uh, One last question for you, Ted. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate the response. We had a man, I cannot believe, I can't remember her name now. Oh, it's driving me nuts. Uh, Author, she had put out a book about um, the way in which housework had changed. She's a writer for Salon.com. I can't remember her name. Anyway, she had made this point in her book that food was safer today than it was back in 1900. And the reason that she said food was safer today than it was back in 1900 is because there are food regulations in place today that weren't happening back in 1900. So there were cases, like she pointed out, a case in Chicago of uh, milk being tainted with paint 
that was being distributed in the inner cities before regulations and people getting incredibly ill and an inability to track that milk back to the processor because they're all small farm processors. There wasn't some big centralized place. So then regulations get put into place and food becomes safer. But then you centralize the food distribution market, and all of a sudden one mistake at one place could mean less safe food for everybody. So I know that this is going to be a complicated answer, but is food safer today than it was during the time of Upton Sinclair in the jungle? Well, the simple answer to that is it's safer than it was in 1900 or 1906 when Upton Sinclair was, was doing his work. But I think the more complicated question is um, not is food safety improved over what it was a century ago, but is food safety improved over what it was a decade ago? And I would say that we made many advances in food safety, and some of those advances are still very much in place. But right now, we are in an era that the industry is attempting to deregulate and is succeeding in deregulating the, especially the, the, the meat industry, but all parts of food production. And so to me, it seems um, a bit of a red herring to say, well, things are better than they were a century ago. Well, you know, I would hope so. Uh, I think that, that we certainly have much better knowledge of medicine and science and all of the things that, that, uh, are part of food safety. Um, but what concerns me is I'm not convinced that our food is as safe now as it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago because of the loosening of regulation. And I think that that should be a cause for concern. And here's one more great tease for uh, Ted's book. Again, uh, Ted Genoway is the author of The Chain Farm Factory and the Fate of Our Food. Find out how spam... The creation of spam wasn't driven by consumer demand, but was driven by a business model. Read his book to find out all the disturbing things. You'll never want to ever see a spam cooking contest again. Ted, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. When the book comes out in paperback, I know you'll have new material. I've got your email address, so you know I'll bug you to get you back on the show. That sounds great. I'd love to be back. All right. Take care, Ted. Thank you. Hey, it's Alex. You were just listening to an old interview we did with Ted Genoways as we had a little bit of problems with your promised interview of Mark Kurlansky. Uh, we will keep working on that for next week, and uh, hopefully he answers his phone sometime in the next seven days. Yeah, I did uh, like, oh God, like 15 hours of research on that interview, and I've got about 75 questions on the 5,000-year history of milk, so maybe we'll get Mark on next week's uh, show. If you're listening on the radio right now and you want to catch the end of that Ted Genoways interview, uh, download the This Is Hell podcast and uh, the four-hour version, and I will have that Ted Genoways thing in its, in its entirety there for you. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be... A god-awful business model. Globalization creates precarity, insecurity, poverty, inequality, hate, and feeds authoritarianism. So if you want to challenge the rise of fascism around the world today, you have to confront our global economic system and our guest in a few minutes. Award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg-Hodge says localization is the alternative system. 
we've all been waiting for. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon if you become a regular Patreon supporter. Not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell subvertising stickers, but you'll also have access to special perks, including every week getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 21-plus years of on-air conversations selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon supporters. And in the future, you'll get additional bonus gifts as well. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support. One of those additional bonus gifts in the very near future will be our brand new t-shirt design. And you, as a Patreon patron, get a discount on that free merchandise. On this week's Patreon podcast, you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon, I got an answer to a question I asked about whether an impromptu response to a telemarketer was offensive. Turns out it was in many ways that I did not know, which is why I asked. And we also played our October 29, 2005 interview with Diane Wilson, a shrimp boat captain, award-winning environmental activist, a Code Pink co-founder, and author of the then-just-published book An Unreasonable Woman, a true story of shrimpers, politicos, polluters, and the fight for Sea Drift, Texas. Diane explains how difficult life is as a shrimper, and how she accidentally became an environmental activist after she saw an AP report saying her county was the country's most polluted she decided to hold a community meeting to find out why because she just didn't know instead of an open and free exchange of information she was confronted by chemical industry officials who were upset with her audacity of even calling in a meeting she later faced threats of violence got fired from her job keep in mind her boss was her brother and had to skedaddle out of Texas for fear of being arrested. Years after the interview, Diane became more politically active, and let's just say she ends up jumping over a gate at the White House. But the only way you can hear her entire story is by becoming a Patreon subscriber of This Is Hell right now. Alex, did you share anything else on Patreon to oh, with our Patreon patrons this week? Uh, actually, yeah, uh, and I don't know how much I should be bragging about this uh, hot bonus content I sh- shared it with everyone, but uh, I really enjoyed the different colors of greens in the bathroom towel selections that you guys had out in the uh, This Is Hell office bathrooms. <laughs> so I shared a really nice photo. I figured maybe people would like to see the This Is Hell office bathrooms. <laughs> And also, uh, what your reading material is in the bathroom, I think no one would guess that. Uh, what was it? You're thinking hyper-locally. Lo- hyper lo- oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you want to tell people? Actually, maybe that's that's the bonus. That's the that, bonus that's, content. That's why uh, you got to sign you up. Find out what, uh, what, newspaper Chuck, what hyper-local newspaper Chuck is reading <laughs> on the can. And you've got to sign up to uh, This Is Hell's Patreon. We want to thank those who have already signed up as Patreon supporters because with your help... We'll finally get our studio up and running as well as rebuild our 21-plus-year archive of shows, thereby allowing us to give you more This Is Hell throughout the week. And we're continuing to build our new studio, thanks to you. And thanks to my girlie, who is at this very moment, yet again, sanding down and preparing our new interview desk. So we are definitely on schedule to have the studios working and open to the public during our third annual 20th anniversary party happening this summer on the summer. Yeah. We're still in spring. On Saturday, July 21st, there will be food, music, art, prizes as well, and we'll be showing off all of our new This Is Hell swag with our new logo. We want to thank the people who joined us this week, including Kevin, Gwen, Chuck, that's not Chuck M, it's Chuck B, Brock, Kate, and Aaron. 
And you can join them in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at thisishell.com and then just clicking on support. We really need your support now with construction, maintenance, uh, phone and internet bills, and what we owe to our programmers working on the archives. Uh, They're quickly adding up. So sign up as a supporter of This Is Hell on Patreon now. On next week's Patreon podcast... I actually said on this week's Patreon podcast it was going to be this interview that we did with a guy named Larry King. No, not that Larry King, a Russia analyst. But apparently we actually shared that one last year, and I just completely forgot. So instead we're playing an interview with one of Diane Wilson's biggest fans, the Shrimp Boat Captain's biggest fans, and that was the late, great Molly Ivins. But again, the only way you can hear that interview is by signing up as a supporter of This Is Hell on Patreon. If you don't know who Molly Ivins is, ask your parents or your grandparents or just somebody who's, you know, weird. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment corporate mainstream, mainstream, not the mainstream media. It's a totally different group. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? What undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? All replies right on air right now. Our favorite one's a copy of a book we will be featuring next week. Assad Haider's Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Again, the question from Al is, what undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? Leave your response now at our favorite Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweet it to us at thisishellradio, and listen right now to hear all the responses to find out if you've won. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question, because... What undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? Noah S. says, people who are still upset that our that the Arsenio Hall show has taken <laughs> off the air. Richard, That's a very small subgroup. Richard M. says, since Trump was elected by disgruntled vo- white voters, I guess, I imagine it'll be gruntled minority voters. <laughs> Marie K. says, potential mass shooting victims. <laughs> wow. Very Marie K.? Yes, Marie K. Uh, Chris L. says, economically anarchist but socially conservative. No hierarchy in the workplace, but gay marriage is a bit iffy. <laughs> Harold J. says, Enema Girls, volume number 85. <laughs> what? I don't know. H- Harold, they're Enema women. <laughs> Mark A. says, Soccer moms who smoke pot. <laughs> what previously undiscovered subgroup of voters will determine, subvoters will determine the 2018 midterm elections? Robert H. says, YouTube pundits. <laughs> ben L. says, New Wave Millennials, 18 to 21. Steve D. says, illegal Canadians. <laughs> I like that. Mark A.S. says, gerrymandered Wisconsin immigrant Hmong NRA members. <laughs> Charles E. says, undiscovered group? Maybe the accelerationists will band together and elect only those candidates dedicated to dissolving the United States. In all likelihood, it will be the discovered groups of corporate Clinton crats and teabagging Bible thumpers. You know, I'm really tired of the teabagging joke. It's it's worn out. It's welcome with me. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, James M. says, people who buy Joe Rogan's Alpha Brain supplements. (laughs) Who said that? Uh, James M. Mitchell C. says, the Lollipop Guild. (laughs) Jacob P. gives us two. One, yuppie scumbags. And then he also says, nimbiers, to be honest. Steve T. says, flat earthers. (laughs) 
What previously undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? KK says, hanging chads. <laughs> Daniel W says, podcasters. <laughs> Lawrence C says, the, who cares? <laughs> Alexandra C says, um, critical thinkers, a girl can dream. <laughs> Adam M, designer of our new logo, says, middle children. <laughs> Noah S says, juggalos. David G says, our moms. <laughs> Benjamin C says the po- the proles. Pete V, our own Pete V says chud. <laughs> the cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. I think it was. Um, Jessica B says the IHOB bourgeoisie. Are you familiar with the IHOB thing? No. The, they change from IHOP to IHOB. What? I still haven't looked up what the B stands for. Uh, International House of Breakfast. Uh, maybe. I, I'm just seeing how long I can go without knowing. Have you ever been to the? Uh... I hop at no. uh, Howard and Western. No, I walk by it all the time. Though, do you recommend it? Uh, it's no, it's horrible. Oh, but okay. it, what, well. what's awesome about it? It's the it's not the internet. It's I call it the interracial house of pancakes because Ooh. you'd be really surprised at the amount of interracial people are there. It's vac- actually it's very it makes you feel really good about eating a horrible food. The individual people themselves are interracial, or these no, sort just of cohort. The, in the cohorts, you know, it's it's really great. It's and fantastic. Can dream. It's diverse. Uh, it's a very diverse place. Ronald, really Ronaldo M says voting machine software manipulators. It's <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, what undisco- undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? Dennis H says Korean War veterans parents. Sebastian M. <laughs> Sebastian M. says, I really hope it's a huge voter block of tankies. Nationalize all industries and gulag Ted Cruz? I'm down. <laughs> Fabio L. says, Janet from accounting. <laughs> John T. says, these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the new west. You know, morons. That's mean. Jasper M. says, the pickleball grandparents will discover hard left as they discover, uh, will break hard left as they discover tennis elbow isn't covered by Medicare. Anthony S. says, Olympic curling enthusiasts. <laughs> Oliver J. says, the dead. <laughs> Willie B. says, undiscovered is precisely right. First time voters, 18 to 28. Graham M.M. says, zombies, who will all vote for Mike Pence because he's clearly dead inside. <sighs> Joanne C. says, me, myself, and I. Nathan D. says, people who <laughs> fantasize about getting spanked by Bob Mueller. <laughs> Fergus Z. says, shoplifters. <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> What previously undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 Demo- uh, midterm elections? KCC says Democratic Twitter bots of America. <laughs> Wally R says the know nothings. Well, like the last election. <laughs> Walter C says legal stoners. Andrew T says patriotic sec- sex workers afraid that foreign sex robots are taking their jobs. JTL says males named Ivan, Sergey, and Boris. Vladdy <laughs> O says a flaming dumpster of deplorables. Patrick S. M. says for every blue-collar Democrat vote we lose, we pick up two moderate Republican foosball moms in the suburbs. Oops. Ben R. says the opposite of incels, the people who F a lot. Yep, thank you for clarifying that, Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark R. says platonic Kantian Zen gorillas. Stephen L. says, dogs named Bosco, Bouncer, and Bandit. Tom G. said, the people who were convinced on March 10th, 2000, that the day the NASDAQ composite stock index peaked at at 5,132.52, signaling the beginning of the end of the dot-com boom. Peter K. says, memory-delayed, overcapitalized Brook Farm fanatics. (laughs) Two more. Jeffy, our own Jeffy D. says, a coalition of trogs, chuds, morlocks, and government employees... And finally, Aaron B. says, pitchforks and torches. 
Any uh, anything on Twitter? Uh, refreshing. That's it. All right. Well, let's see. I liked uh, Marie's uh, potential mass shooting victims. <laughs> this is very good. Uh, Mark's uh, pot smoking soccer moms. Steve D's illegal uh, Canadians. I like that. The Joe Rogan response is good, just because I want to just make sure that everybody refers to the in- uh, intellectual dark web as the intellectual dork web, and I think that's what we actually are part of. Uh, Steve T on Flat Earthers, that's fantastic. I, I think they're going to send up another satellite real soon to see if that's actually true. Oliver J's uh, saying the dead, and Fergus Z saying shoplifters. I think that's... Uh, let's go with Marie and the potential mass shooting victims, because... You know, not only is that uh, spot on, but it is actually great political analysis. So let's just go with Marie. And Marie, you have won Assad Hyder's book. What the hell was the name of the book again, Alex? I forgot again already. Oh, yeah. Um, Identity during the era of Trump. What the hell is it called? I can't remember. Assad Hyder's book that we're going to be focusing on tomorrow's oh, next week's show. I just don't remember it off the top of my head. My re- response to the question from Hell: What undiscovered subgroup of voters will decide the 2018 midterm elections? I'm going to go with the uh, Southern Baptist Stalinists, who are going all in on Trump. They appear to be religious, anti-war, pro-worker, Confederates, but in reality. They're just authoritarians who want a dictator instead of democracy. They want a strong man instead of an elected representative. Eh, so yeah, I'm going with Southern Baptist Stalinists. This is how office hours happen this and every Wednesday. From 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from the This Is Hell office, and hopefully soon, our studio as well. By the way, right now, Second Story Studios, where the art gallery is that we share the space with. Uh, They're going to be open from 3 to 6 today. They have open gallery hours this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, from 3 to 6. So if you want to see the art that's over there, the work of Lisa Barcy is something that is not to be missed. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, hang out and chat me up, and I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping in. That is, if I remember, and I haven't been remembering lately, but actually this last week I'm, I'm getting better at it. So if you help me remember, I'll help get you a book and some advertising stickers. Come on in, say hello, watch me drink, get a free book hopefully, and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words This Is Hell. This Is Hell Office Hours, Wednesdays, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I want to thank the people who dropped by this past Wednesday. Thanks to Eric the Luthier, who gave us tips on the best way to refinish our interview desk. Thanks to Alex for joining us, as well as Laura, Dave, Wally, Joel, Lisa. It was great meeting Hannah and Leo. Leo may actually start volunteering here on This Is Hell, which is fantastic, and joining our crew, which is now expanding with Kate here as well this week. Thanks to Tom, who always gives us great guest suggestions, including Helena, who is our next guest on today's show. It was also great to meet Tom's friend, Carrie, and special thanks to Brian, who gave us fantastic advice on our new This Is Hell t-shirt mock-ups and has been suggesting some really talented artists for the upcoming art show during our anniversary party on July 21st. 
31st. By the way, if you have any suggestions for bands, artists, or would like to donate prizes for our Saturday, July 21st listener appreciation and this is hell anniversary party and art show and music and food, tell me during office hours on Wednesdays or email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And you can talk me up and get free books and stickers, hopefully, at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, there is an alternative to globalization, and that alternative is localization. And during a singular moment of truth, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his reflection. All that plus a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. Probably not. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell, live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing, this is hell. Globalization, as in the global economic system, is fueling the rise of the far-right authoritarian, far right authoritarianism and breeding hate in an age of uncertainty, insecurity, and precarity. But our next guest sees a way out here to tell us that there is an alternative award-winning new economy movement pioneer, Helena Norberg-Hodge, wrote the article, Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, which was posted at the Transnational Institute's website. Welcome to This is Hell, Helena. Thank you. Very glad to be here. This is fantastic writing. I just want to point out, uh, Helena is a recipient of the Alternative Nobel Prize. She is the author of the 2009 book, which you should definitely check out, Ancient Futures, Lessons from Ladakh for a Globalized World. She's also producer of the award-winning documentary, The Economics of Happiness. You write for those who care about peace, equality, and the future of the planet. The global political swing to the right over the past few years is deeply worrying. From my 40 years of experience working in both industrialized and land-based cultures, I believe the primary reason is globalization. When I say globalization, I mean the global economic system in which most of us now live, a system driven by continual corporate deregulation and shaped by neoliberal capitalist ideologies. Can globalization, which has bipartisan support here in the United States and is seen as an inevitable given of modern society, can that globalization happen without continual corporate deregulation and shaped by neoliberal capitalist ideologies? Can we have global trade without the problems you see caused by globalization? We certainly could have uh, global trade, but what we need to look at is the freedom, the deregulation that we're giving to global traders. And that includes the financial institutions and the banks. We've had a series of trade treaties ever since the Second World War that are essentially giving global corporations more and more freedom. And that freedom today means that they are forcing governments to sign in the new trade treaties what are called ISDS clauses, that stands for Investor State Dispute Settlements, in which governments are writing in black and white, we will not do anything that might reduce your profit-making potential. If we do, you can take us to court. This is why most governments are now rolling back, you know, completely reversing both labor and environmental protection that has been brought in, you know, through the hard work of countless numbers of people and organizations because they are essentially 
blindly going along with so-called free trade, which is not actually free trade, it's forced trade, it's senseless trade. It includes importing and exporting the same product from water to toxic waste. Countries are importing and exporting the same thing. In other words, the U.S. imports about a hundred thousand, um, but actually about a billion tons of beef, and turns around and exports about a billion tons of beef. Why? Because if we ate our own food in most countries for most of our daily needs, no multinationals would make money. But instead, literally hundreds of thousands of farmers and and medium-sized and smaller businesses would make money. Sorry, it's a bit long-winded. <laughs> no, no, no. That's what I, you know, we uh, do these long-form interviews so people don't have to talk in sound bites. So I, no, I really appreciate that. And it, I just wanted to uh, point out a couple of things about what you said. And one is that this is, as you were saying, this is not free trade. And it would seem like this idea of exporting uh, tons of beef while you're importing tons of beef, that that wouldn't make sense, that there would be no profit involved in that. So a two-part question, I guess, but it's actually one answer. How is this not a free market? And what makes it profitable to be able to export meat or export any product and then be importing the exact same product? Well, again, remember now we're talking about profitable for whom? So when we're talking about giant multinational corporations, their profit may be you know, tiny for each product, but what this is all about is essentially control. So what's happening is as a consequence of our government supporting global trade, they're supporting global traders. That includes laying out a red carpet in the form of infrastructure that suits the needs of the global players. It includes allowing those global traders to be so mobile and so clever that they pay virtually no tax. So here we have a situation, a two-tier system of a type of feudalism where a few giants pay no tax and have no regulation. In the meanwhile, and I think this is one of the main reasons for the rise in this authoritarianism that's so frightening, is that small businesses around the world are feeling more and more uh, you know, frustrated by government bureaucracy, red tape, they're strangled by regulation, they're taxed very heavily. So their solution is no government, in other words, laissez-faire, free trade, neoliberal economics, because all they see is the big hand of government. They don't realize that behind that hand of government is the much bigger hand of giant businesses. And I believe that if we could get this message out, we could get a sane and very rapid shift towards preventing this completely skewed and unfair system from benefiting the few at the expense of the many. And no self-respecting capitalist believes in subsidies, believes in monopolies. And yet that's what we have. We, we are subsidizing global monopolies and punishing the 90%. So why do you think why do you think it is that we blame 
uh, or that, that it is so much more attractive, apparently, to blame the government than to blame businesses when clearly, you know, one of the things we hear here in the States, if only government was run like a business. Well, it is being run by business already. So why is it that we cannot see the hand of business behind whatever government bureaucracy that's being forced upon small businesses that is not being forced upon large businesses? Because the seeing is done through corporate eyes. I mean, this is for me the most frightening and also in a sense the most hopeful thing. That is that what I'm seeing is even in my native country of Sweden and worldwide is that virtually every avenue of knowledge is being colonized by big business. So the mainstream media, even as we now can see a lot of what goes on on the internet, Science, education, you would not believe how much school books and university curricula have changed to favor either a silencing of the real issue, which is this monopolistic control, which is so inefficient and so destructive and really doesn't benefit even the average CEO. But it's this blind fundamentalist mantra about free trade And um, that's being perpetuated. And so really the problem is that you very rarely get a holistic, clear picture of what's going on globally. And the average person is just seeing the hand of government with its huge bureaucracy growing. We're all now subject to more and more bureaucracy, partly linked to the way the use of the computers and Internet service the large scale. And so even as a doctor, you know, you're spending more of your time looking at your computer and writing up notes than you have time to look at your patient. Uh, uh, Teachers, professors, they're spending so much time, again, looking at the computer and reporting back to higher authorities that they can't deal with the students, they can't deal with the mentally ill, they can't. It's, It's really a very rapid progression into, yeah, into what we can you know, what we really need to describe as a type of neo-feudalism. So I think the big thing, I'm so grateful to you. I think community radio is one of the most important tools we have to reach more people with the same message, common sense. It's something that most people across left and right would agree with because what we're saying, you know, the, the people I deal with in, in the new economy movement is that it, this is not about, certainly not about a communist alternative. It's not even a socialist alternative we're talking about. We are talking about fairness. We're talking about ending these hidden subsidies. We're talking about ending a system which can only lead to, you know, right now we have about eight men controlling more than half more wealth than half of the global population. At this moment, we're moving in a direction where that's going to be reduced to four, then it's going to be reduced to two. I mean, it's insane what's happening. The the inequality, the injustice, the unfairness is something that, you know, almost no sane thinking person would subscribe to. But a clarity, a holistic, systemic understanding of what's going on globally, why this is happening, how the trade treaties are fundamental to all this. And I also want to add, you know, maybe for me, one of the most important things is that we now 
have evidence of what happens when people come together at the local level to support their local businesses. This is not some kind of isolationism or some kind of you know, racism, which is how it's portrayed by the global media. So this is local people coming together to collaborate and support smaller and medium-sized businesses. And we're just seeing, you know, wonderful results. Um, so we have evidence that allowing smaller-scale businesses to survive is beneficial both in terms of secure livelihoods, more genuinely democratic and accountable structures, but it also heals political and racial and social divides. So that information is another vitally important bit of evidence that we need to be presenting. And we need to use the community media and every other sort of socially accountable media to get this message out. What 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 explains to you the susceptible? You know, we consume so much media. What explains uh, you think we'd be good at it? What explains our susceptibility to uh, business propaganda? Because you write, some studies have shown that every new supermarket in the UK entails a net loss of two hundred and seventy six jobs. The online marketer Amazon has destroyed one hundred and fifty thousand more jobs than it has created, according to a report from the Institute for Local Self Reliance. Like other online retailers, Amazon has not only benefited from communications and transport infrastructures built at public expense. It has avoided collecting state and local ta- sales taxes from its customers, sales tax revenues that states and localities desperately need, giving Amazon a price advantage of as much as 9.75% over Main Street businesses. And we recently spoke to Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance about Amazon's unfair advantages, how it has been built on public money and resources, how it is arguably a monopoly, how it is bad for workers and local employment, yet even those who are aware continue to use Amazon and cities around the uh, country are fight, uh, fighting uh, for the newest Amazon headquarters. To you, what explains why cities want Amazon, want to continue to cheerlead for a company like Amazon to come in? As you and Stacy have pointed out, uh, they haven't proven to be good for cities or workers. This week we had Elon Musk saying that he's going to put in some high-speed rail for rich people that goes from downtown to our airport here in Chicago. And all of a sudden you see the TV news anchors on, on our local stations with huge smiles and all excited and hand clapping all over it. Why is it that we cannot see that this is business propaganda? Well, I think from my point of view, it's not strange. It's because people so rarely hear a holistic, sensible argument that explains to them what's really going on. We have not realized how much propaganda there's been for the Internet world and the Internet businesses. Most people on the left, most environmentalists have seen it as almost only beneficial It's only very recently that people have started questioning it as some of the worst abuse has become clear. But, you know, so one of the worst things we're up against is as more and more people are struggling to pay the mortgage and to just survive, and they have less and less time when things are offered to them, like an Amazon product where they're not taxed and it looks a bit cheaper, you really can't blame people in a way for opting for that. What I'm convinced of is if we can just get some of the funders who are trying, you know, there are foundations, there are wealthy funders who are trying to do something, 
you know, to make the world a better place, who really are fighting injustice and poverty, who are concerned about environmental issues, if they could only help to get this more holistic message out. Because we, we have a very powerful argument that is both social, environmental, democratic, even spiritual. It's to do with values, of, of human values, of really caring about community, caring about the future of our children. And yet, when it's just presented like, are you going to buy this Amazon product, you know, which is going to cost you a little bit less and you're going to get it faster or not, and it's just a market choice in a, a rat race where people are running faster and faster, we're not going to make headway. We've got to have, you know, an attempt. I, I, another way that I talk about it is what I see the greatest need today is what I call big picture activism. In other words, the activism now is really about people's minds. It's about really understanding what's going on. And it's about moving away from saying to people, I want you to buy the more expensive product, and that's how you're going to save the planet. This idea that we're all going to change things through the market is a corporate idea. We can change it through policy, and we can also change it through community connected uh, coming together through localization. So there's a lot we can do. So any listener out there, you know, who's listening now, I would urge you to look well, look at our website, look at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, who are friends and colleagues. We have an agenda that can help you right now do something much more meaningful, which you will find beneficial in your daily life right now. But we also want you to engage in this big picture activism, which is to share the links, to share those big picture pieces that are connecting the dots, that are putting things together in a way that shows that through very pragmatic and simple policy changes, we could start shifting the direction of our government. But we, can, we need to build up this voice into a stronger movement. It's a new economy movement which goes beyond left and right. We've got to stop fixating on Trump and, and, and on the Trump voters as bad guys. We've got to stop fixating just on climate or just on poverty or just on indigenous rights and see how when we put the big picture together, every single one of those categories, the poor, the marginalized, the planet, will all benefit from this economic shift. And that agenda, that picture is just not out there widely enough. I don't know if you disagree with that, if you think it is out there. I definitely don't see it. Yeah, I don't see it either. But as Helena was just saying, you can find out more about localization by going to, uh, she's the director, founder and director of Local Futures. And you can go to that website and find out more. Local Futures can be found at localfutures.org. Why do you think, or not do you think, why is the right seemingly better at exploiting precarity and insecurity than the left? Why does blaming others, why, why does hate, rather than us all working together to address the problem, why is that apparently more successful? Well, you see, if you look at how left and right, and again, that includes my native country of Sweden and all of Scandinavia, our governments have for far too long allowed a measure like GDP to be used to measure progress. GDP goes up 
with breakdown. You know, it is, it's an utterly insane thing that we're still allowing this to happen. So it means, in other words, all it measures is money exchange. In other words, commercialization. Commercialization increases with breakdown. If you have a very strong community and many friends and family, you don't need to pay for a caretaker to take your grandmother to the shop. If you have a functioning strong community, you don't need to pay an escort service to go with you to a concert or something. If you have a functioning healthy economy, you do not measure progress as increasing if all the water is so polluted that people have to buy it in bottles. So we have very deep in our dominant economic system, supported by left and right, certain basic crazy foundations that have that need to be changed. They don't need to be changed by suddenly overnight, you know, shutting down every big corporation, ending all global trade, thinking that everybody in a corporation must be a bad person, everybody in a small local business is a good person. It's not like that. We are <clears throat> surrounded by a system which, through the way it's measured, GDP, through what we tax, and then what governments use to subsidize those taxes, and then what governments regulate. And that means, you know, what they regulate and what they deregulate. Those mechanisms need to be shifted. And by shifting those mechanisms, we could actually have a peaceful path uh, whereby we start shrinking the power of these global monopolies. We start supporting and using our taxes and our <clears throat> our collective finances to support genuinely healthy, diversified production. It, it, in practical terms, it would not be nearly as difficult as people think to start shifting directions. But as I say, what's needed is that bigger picture to see it and also to see that on the ground, I, I have to tell you, you know, the localization movement for us is particularly important around food. And in food and farming, we have had literally for now more, more than a century, for centuries, we have had policies that essentially marginalize and destroy the small farmer. They have to struggle. They've been encouraged to buy more and more machinery, go into debt. And then either they merge and join, you know, become part of a bigger conglomerate or die. Now, that path is being reversed from the grassroots. It's a very small movement, but it's a rapidly growing movement. And it's worldwide. And what it's demonstrating is that when you support smaller diversified farms, you can actually start supporting farming that reduces CO2 emissions, that heals the soil that actually is healing the environment while it increases productivity. Now, this is the fundamental truth that is being recognized now, even at the level of the UN. But again, it's not getting out. Because the myth we've had all these years, all these generations, is that we need big farms to feed the global population. That is a myth. So fundamental to the localization movement is this growing global local food movement, and that's where you can get a sort of basic lesson in a really sane new economy perspective. Of course, everything is not about food, 
that food is the only thing we produce as human beings that every single person on the planet needs every day of their life. The only thing that human beings produce that's so needed. So once we start getting that right and we start building and shifting direction, which is happening from the bottom up. And I want to say, you know, for me, it's so amazingly inspiring to see how farmers and consumers and middlemen have come together to create these new food initiatives because they're doing it against the tide. All the information, the taxes, the subsidies, the pressure makes it difficult for them. And which is also why it is still not flourishing as much as it should, because we have all these heavy, heavy subsidies basically for Walmart. So if you go to the farmer's market, you will not get the same low prices. But you'd be surprised if you really start looking at what's happening, uh, how much the prices of really healthy foods can come down in those local initiatives. And how many projects there are, you know, even in Denver, in many other cities where people are starting to reclaim some of their knowledge about how to grow food, how many uh, projects, it heals anger and violence. You know, there are projects with prisoners who, when they start gardening and growing food, can literally become different human beings, you know, in a matter of months. I don't want to wax too lyrical about it. I do love, love, love this movement. And I, you know, I know the farmer who started the first CSA in Beijing. And I'm, I've helped, you know, I've worked with farmers in South Korea and in Italy and in Africa. We're, we're a very small organization, but very, very grassroots. And I suppose the biggest thing about that is that you do regain a sense that human beings really want to do the right thing. Human beings thrive. Even, you know, angry prisoners thrive when they're given the opportunity to do something different. How much do you, how much is the localization movement about getting prices more in line with reality? Because as you point out, a small farmer, they have to spend a lot more money to make their product because they are being regulated and restricted and limited by rules that they apply to large agribusiness uh, outfits. So they, uh, you know, it's a far bigger capital output for a small farmer than it is for a large farmer. You can't, uh, you know, take that capital and spread it out over your gigantic system where you can make a little bit more money. How much is the localization movement about making prices more in line with the market? How, how much is it about being actually more capitalist and free market than it actually is? Well, you see, this is very interesting because you have to realize that in a sense, what we're talking about here is two markets. So we've got this one essentially global market, which is being shaped through these global trade treaties and which has become more and more globalized and supporting bigger and bigger and more global banks and businesses. We should talk a little bit about the money as well. But in the meanwhile, when you start linking up farmers and consumers more directly, and it doesn't always have to be local, local. I mean, local is a relative term. Sometimes it will be just a direct relationship between a group of farmers and a group of consumers, maybe even in a different country, but it's a direct relationship. It's more human scale. There is more direct knowledge. And 
Best of all is when you can shorten the distances because then you reduce the need for packaging and for all kinds of things that become not only more expensive but very uh, counterproductive. You know, the mountains of plastic we're facing now have primarily are a consequence of this globalized system. So what they're doing is actually creating a different market. So this is the big difference. Instead of asking people in the dominant global market to buy the more expensive product and not buy the cheap thing from Amazon, here we're actually setting up a new market where they can actually buy things at quite a reasonable price. And above all, the producers and the shops uh, can thrive. And so you can actually show how in a more localized system, there is this multiple benefit effect because when you're buying from these local businesses or local farmers, they spend money in the local economy and you're getting this multiplier effect where money spent in that local economy will benefit many more people, many more jobs. And when you have those multiple benefits, you also start getting more collaboration between those people. Instead of people being trapped in this big system, just fighting to survive, fighting each other for this anonymous, big economic hand that they don't even understand or, or know about. And one thing you know, to keep in mind, which is very frightening in this deregulating global system, is that banks and financial institutions have been more and more deregulated. Now, this is after 2008, even, when everybody in the world knew that, of course, we've got to regulate these financial institutions that are playing with the lives of millions of people, trading in envelopes of mortgages that have been pushed on people and had no idea of who these people are, where they are, their names, nothing. It's a financial casino where you and I and our grandparents as well as our grandchildren are victims of a blind system. Now, one of the things I want to say about that too is I think that, you know, there are a lot of people even in the on Wall Street and in other, you know, trading positions they're, they're not, you know, they're not all evil people who are sitting there consciously destroying people's lives. They become so specialized and they're earning a good salary and they're in a culture where this is just what you do. So I think we're going to be greatly helped by also looking at this more as a problem of a system that's being supported through blindness. And yes, what I'm seeing is the higher up the ladder you go, the more you earn in this system you're likely to be more blind and you're likely to be more willfully blind and it can be pretty annoying to meet some of these willfully blind people. But generally, there's nobody there laying out the truth on a silver platter and getting people to you know, really connect the dots and to see that, hey, you know, if you continue in this direction, you are helping, you know, as I said in that paper, you, you know, you're helping to give rise to a type of fascism, which is very frightening. You're also helping to increase CO2 emissions, mountains of plastic, toxic waste, toxic chemicals. You're helping to create insecurity, financial and economic insecurity for the majority of the human race. Wait a minute. Let's sit down and look at this and see what we could do collectively to change direction. Now, I know, you know a lot of people have given up on political change, and I can understand why. And I do want to say, I really don't think the answer lies with 
trying to focus on on one new savior. It's about really more people having greater economic literacy in order to be politically more savvy. We are not going to have democracy if we do not deal with this economic juggernaut. And so, um, you know, people starting to discuss these issues, especially community radio, you know, keeping up this discussion. I'd love to be back on with you again. I'd love to put you in touch with some of my colleagues. You know, there's so, so much to say about all of this. No, we definitely want to do that. And I'm going to be bugging you in the very near future to get some more connections with people who are into the localization movement. But one of the things that you hear in the West, the global North here in the U.S., is that they they have this idea that and and you've had experience with this in 40 years in working in Ladakh in the Indian Himalayas, an area called Little Tibet, uh, is that. The West has done so much for the developing world, that they have given so much. They've spent so much money in foreign aid to help out the developing world. Here in the U.S., we see the media and government constantly blaming extremism for terrorism. But you saw the divide between Buddhist and Muslim populations in Tibet that had lived together uh, next door to each other in, in one solid community for centuries and centuries, for millennia, and then it was destroyed by de- development. How much has unfair development imposed by the West on the developing world led to not only militant extremism, but terrorism? Is development and the global economic system, quote unquote, why they hate us? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I want to say about this is that I do feel really sorry for the sort of average Westerner who is made to feel that it's their fault that all of this is happening. Yes, it is true. It came from the West. But as I see it, we have to understand that from the very beginning, we're talking about the global traders. And when that all started with slavery and colonialism, those traders were not very nice people. I mean, they had values that are, you know, abhorrent to most people. You know, they were literally hunting native people. There was genocide. There was, you know, slavery, imprisonment of people who didn't go along with essentially creating a global economy. People in the so-called third world, which, you know, were the colonies originally, they were forced away from producing a range of things for themselves to producing commodities for the global traders, for the global market. The whole regions became suddenly cotton areas or tea areas or tin mining. or And that was all through force. Having once established that system through force, later on these supposed colonies became liberated, but they didn't become financially liberated. I really hope that you and others will watch our film, The Economics of Happiness, uh, where we lay out this argument, you know, in a big picture way, and we're doing international conferences around the world, trying to link up, you know, people who are interested in everything from poverty and racism to to the environment and, and to democracy to come together for systemic change. So anyway, you know, in order to see that systemic change, you do have to go back in time. And right now, if we talk about this, incredible impoverishment and divisiveness that's growing in the so-called third world, we really have to make it clear that the average Westerner has had nothing to do with it. We have not been asked whether our taxes should be used to go out and essentially create more wealth for the very wealthy elite. And what they've done is actually create wealth for both 
Western elites, but also third world elites. So Chinese billionaires, Philippine billionaires, African billionaires. It's a it's a system that really is marginalizing. You know, more than ninety. I mean, really ninety nine percent of humanity. And in the meanwhile, let's not make it seem as though you know the average Westerner is struggling to pay their mortgage had anything to do with that, except unconsciously, <clears throat> sometimes through very good will, promoting what they thought was aid, what they thought was development, and they thought it was a good thing. And so <clears throat> you even had many organizations, um, you know, non-governmental organizations raising money for a type of development that actually was destroying local economies, destroying local self-respect, um, what's happening now, thank goodness, is there are, you know, in some cases, there's a deeper dialogue. And really what it comes down to is that every community is going to benefit by getting away from a dependence on global corporations and starting to build their own local economy. Um, but the link to to really frightening ethnic and racial divisiveness, the link to terror. Terrorism is very, very clear in our experience because when you marginalize, particularly when you marginalize men, and we have a system which is doing it in a two-way uh, uh, way, it comes in with images of who you should be all around the world. It doesn't matter where you live, in Appalachia or in Kenya or in China, the image is essentially a white consumer image, and you should be Filthy rich, glamorous, you know, and have, uh, you know, the fancy car, live the urban consumer lifestyle, otherwise you're nobody. But the other thing that's happening at the same time is that people's livelihoods are more insecure. So you have this overpowering image which makes you feel like nobody if you don't have all this stuff. And then at the same time, you have a system that's destroying millions of smaller farmers and jobs and livelihoods, so people are getting impoverished. When you do that to men, when you take away their psychological self-respect and their financial security, their ability to provide for themselves and their families and so on, that's a recipe for violence. And the immediate thing is to turn against the other, you know, the immediate other. And this is why, you know, now in the West there is such an anger against immigrants who are seen as the ones who are taking this away from them. And the same way, you know, I saw not just in Ladakh or Little Tibet, but in Bhutan, Hindus and Buddhists had lived side by side for generations. And after about a decade, well, about two decades of the system coming in, suddenly they were killing each other. It's happening in Burma now with the Rohingya. And it happened in many other places after the colonial powers left. They had set up this highly competitive, very destructive economy, and suddenly different tribes and different groups were at each other's throats. So it's the, it's the problem of that ethnic friction and breakdown goes back, you know, to also to colonialism. 
I find that really fascinating, the idea of uh, it not being our fault, we are not responsible, because that is one of the, I think, the biggest obstacles to people understanding uh, how the economic, global economic system has punished the poor and made an unfair and unequal system that leads to the kind of hate, authoritarianism, extremism, and violence that you see. I, I don't think that people want to claim responsibility for that. And as you just pointed out, they shouldn't be claiming responsibility. They, it, we were never asked. There was never any kind of referendum. But here in the States, Helena, we have a right-wing leader, Donald Trump, who has come to power in partly due to his criticism of globalization. How can someone like Trump both be an outcome of globalization and a critic of it? Why would he try to undermine a system system from which he and his power were created? I think that we can see that we're dealing with someone who is very juvenile, very narcissistic, and he's coming in on this, you know, belief that he's going to make America great, and that, in his mind, also means making himself great and his businesses wealthier and greater. And uh, he is—it's a very, very disturbing trend for. Many of us, because he, of course, makes many people believe that if he's against these trade treaties, well, then it must be a good thing. Um, but I think we just have to, again, sit down and really look at what's going on here. This is not a man who is going to be genuinely supporting flourishing smaller and medium-sized businesses. This is a man who's out to get a deal, which apparently even made clear now in North Korea he wants to build Trump hotels. So I think um, I just hope that people will look at these issues and think for themselves. And we're talking about a way forward, which is not feeding into old time nationalism, which has always been linked to uh, a leadership that used it in in a, often for war. Uh, you know, nationalism is generally not healthy. What is healthy is a sense of community, a sense of identity, but not one that is linked to a nation state that is going to make itself great at the expense of other countries and other peoples, and, and usually, you know, completely linked to a war machine. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're dealing with a very difficult situation, but I think... Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't think, I am convinced, you know, when we show people our film, The Economics of Happiness, and we, for instance, deal with the fact that countries are importing and exporting the same products. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're not just talking about America. We're talking UK routinely exports as much milk and butter as it turns around and imports. Now, does anyone talk about that when they talk about climate change? No. Because this is what's supporting the global corporations at the expense of literally millions of smaller businesses and farmers. Do people know that supermarkets routinely will fly apples from the UK to South Africa to be washed and then they're flown back again? Norway flies fish to China to be deboned and then it flies back again. I mean, we are talking about the most outrageous ways and the major cause of climate change. And what happens because of corporate funding, the climate change issue is also just pointing the finger at these poor individuals who are just struggling to survive. And they're told, you know, you're driving your car, you're going on holiday in an airplane. 
where you're an environmental activist and you're traveling. How dare you? In this era of climate change, you should stay home and you should never fly and you should never drive a car. You know, and in the meanwhile, the major cause of climate change is not being discussed. And so what I'm saying is, if we can help get this bigger picture out, I see the potential for really a huge swing towards sanity and a type of holistic sanity that we reduce this enormous gap now between, I mean, you know, the scary, scary thing is that the gap between different racial groups, between gender, between immigrants and insiders, all of these um, divisions, these social divisions are being played up hugely in the media. And the areas where we could actually come together for meaningful change uh, are not getting out or not getting a voice. Um, and as I said, you know, whether it's poverty in the third world or climate change or a million and other, you know, and another thing we should be talking about is the epidemic of anxiety and depression in young people, which is a global epidemic, absolutely global epidemic, growing by the day. Yeah, we... If we don't make a connection to this bigger system, again, it becomes another single issue that ends up being divisive. And the most tragic thing is that parents end up blaming themselves. Uh, you know, the suicide rates going up, anxiety, depression, and without the bigger picture, it's all about self-blame. And it's not going to get us anywhere except towards anger and further divisiveness. Helena, one last question for you. We've been speaking with award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg. Hodge. She wrote the article Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalize Authoritarianism, which was posted at the Transnational Institute's website. You can find out more about her organization, which she is the founder and director of Local Futures, by going to localfutures.org, where you can find out how localization can work for you and your community. One last question for you, Helena, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, a relate, uh, uh, an elitism charge against people who are for localization is that the northerners working to localize their economies are turning their backs on the impoverished people of the global south who need northern markets to pull themselves out of poverty. What will happen? What would happen to developing economies if suddenly the U.S wasn't the world's leading consumer anymore. What would happen if the nation that, as of 2015, consumes a whopping 29% of the world market, with Japan coming in second and only slightly over 8.5% of the market, suddenly stopped consuming the goods of the global south? See, this is how it's presented, as some kind of boycott, like overnight, okay, we're not going to buy any more stuff, you know, from one day to the next. Totally impossible. What we're talking about here is the transition that would give plenty of time to the producers who right now in producing things for us, often market gadgets or, you know, just uh, consumer gadgets or even food, are not producing for themselves. Perfect amount of time for us to make that shift in production. They're going to have just the same amount of time to make the transition themselves. So this is not possible as some kind of boycott. It's not going to be snap our fingers and suddenly we're producing everything we need. It's going to be a policy choice. It's going to be a movement as it is now. You know, there's a a grassroots movement growing and there's plenty of time for those people who are dependent on the other system to start making adjustments. 
Helena, I really, really appreciate you being on the show this week. I am going to annoy you in email to get more contact information for people who are working on the localization movement around the world. And your article, I just want to point out to everybody, you should go out and you should go read her article, uh, Localization, a Strategic Solution to Globalized Authoritarianism, because she gives many examples of how millions of people are already in the localization movement and oddly... That's not being talked about in the corporate mainstream media. Thank you so much, Helena. I really appreciate you being on our show. Thank you. Love talking to you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell in a few moments. During the moment of truth, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his own reflection. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports or my monologue, which was pretty much just refuted by Helena. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so you want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more shared, but many choose to do so anonymously and considering... Facebook's sharing of data, that's probably a good idea. Thanks this week goes to Astrid, Anarchimedia, Jesse, Rob, Simon, Nick, Steve, Rich, all the people who shared our interview with Henry Giraud, including Lisa, Jeff with a G, Tom, Fergus, and Randall. Randall. Also thanks for sharing to Marco, Brian, Mika, Gorilla Gramophonics, Jeffrey, and that's only the people who shared This Is Hell publicly on Facebook. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our content upon your neighbors, Email us your local radio station's call, later, call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. And some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not the Media Radio Network. Again, if you want to hear us on your local favorite radio station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. Or better yet, email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is... This is hell coming up on this week's This is Hell. During a moment of truth, Jeff shines up some atrocities to see his own reflection. All that plus, you know, we might actually have time for Twist Off Knowledge. Some listeners we want to thank for supporting This is Hell as well. And, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This is Hell. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. And, Alex, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do, Kanye's Choice, Part 2. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Last week I talked about the artifacts by which we remember both the Shoah and the captivity of black people in the West. This week I'm going to talk about their comparative aesthetics. The Shoah is mainly urban, industrial, scientific, Norse, Protestant, art deco, sadomasochistic, slash, black leather, red, black, and white. The slavery chapter of the captivity is mainly represented in earth tones with hints of blue and the dripping green of kudzu, rural, agrarian, folk, southern Baptist, sun-dappled, outsider, and itinerant artsy, 
colonial, linen, and bondage sadist. The biblical character of Moses figures in the liberation theology of both, though ironically more so in the captivity than in the Shoah. The Shoah's iconography of liberation tends more toward the Maccabean than the Mosaic, although there are both armies and solitary figures of liberation associated with both Matthew's atrocities. In the Shoah, the main figures of resistance, the partisans and the allies, are armies, akin to the Maccabees, if anything biblical, and the downfall of the bureaucratic industrial enemy is a military one, while Harriet Tubman, guiding her people to freedom through the Underground Railroad as the Moses figure of the captivity, looms large. Liberation depends on the courage and perseverance of the individual heroes in the face of interpersonal, if pandemic, human hatred, hatred that was enacted anew every time an individual crime against dark-skinned humans was committed. While the portrait of Nazism is painted against the background of policies and laws under which a dormant, innate anti-Semitism was enabled to emerge, giving a great multitude of Europeans permission to commit the crimes they'd always wanted to commit, the institution of slavery was considered the economic end, the means to which was the manipulation of hatred that turned people against their better natures. Although this diagram of hatred has since transformed to one more closely resembling the Nazi license model, as the captivity has moved from its slavery phase into its black codes, Jim Crow, and current carceral, more obviously genocidal phases. Does society make us racists, or does it merely allow us to act out our inborn hatred of the other? The answer isn't limited to those choices, especially now that we no longer diagram human nature as reducible to a solid or binary thing, but as a spectrum and a fluid one at that. Considering the question of why the Shoah has so much cachet and attractiveness in the media imagination versus the captivity, you could point to the urban and industrial setting of the main chapters of the atrocity against the Jews, the relatively brief and discreet amount of time the Shoah was popularly considered to have begun and ended, the whiteness of the victims, and the fashionableness of the perpetrators. The SS were stylish in an Art Deco fashion. The Art Deco eagles and lightning bolts and skulls gave their entire project the air of putting a modern spin on an age-old psychopathy. Nazism seems a perversion of style, a perversion of art, of industry, medicine, science, and government. Perversion is hot. Slavers, on the other hand, had abominable style. Colonel Sanders is not a trendsetter. His outfit was not designed by intellectuals with an eye toward cool and sleek. And the hick or hillbilly style of the overseer and the sweaty night-raping master is hardly the stuff of sex clubs, the dominatrix, or anti-authoritarian bikers or Finnish homoerotic illustration. It has not transferred to TV and movie coolness, sexiness, and leisure pleasures, however perverse. The most fashionable things to come out of slavery are Frederick Douglass's look, and the Henleys worn by runaway male slaves on the TV show Underground. The entire wardrobe design for Underground was excellent, but especially those Henleys. And it's a shame the show ran for so short, uh, as it might have infused slavery with a little more style. Another missed opportunity was the ill-fated but brilliantly and perversely titled Birth of a Nation of 2016, which was buried by the tone-deaf response of director Nate Parker to accusations of rape. That the rape itself was the true tragedy would go without saying, but one has to say it because it's gone without saying for so long, no one even misses its mention anymore. In discussions of entertainment and the aesthetic questions of persecution, actual crimes are often concealed and lost in the folds and textures of the spectacle. This is not to say that fetishizing the beautiful bodies of black men and women hasn't been inherent in the captivity from 
the actual advertisement, appraisal, and sale of those bodies in historical reality to their titillating appearances in schlocky exploitation movies. And although there is a thread of discourse that attaches the most dehumanizing racism to white objectification of black bodies and objectification of black bodies, the overall aesthetic appreciation of those bodies as athletes, dancers, models, and simply examples of human, bo- human beauty is viewed today as virtuous, as black voices have become and continue to be more integrated into the mainstream of critical discussion in the popular arts. This is opposed to the popular view that the sexualizing of Nazi imagery and derivative bondage fashion is a perverse, impure indulgence. And of course, there's nothing beautiful about the victims of Nazism. Spielberg's male gaze-heavy pornographic disrobing of Jewish women in the Auschwitz shower scene in Schindler's List notwithstanding. The Nazi attracted to the genetically filthy Jewish woman can hardly survive in our culture, although it does have an analog in jungle fever and other fevers, the racist attraction of white men and women to the exotic and savage. The singular fact is the captivity narrative says that black people are proud of who they are, are strong and beautiful, which pride and beauty fed the hatred of the inferior white oppressor who envied black excellence, fetishized it, longed to dominate it, either own it or destroy it. Black people are the heroes of their oppression narrative, too strong and beautiful to be allowed freedom by the white world. No wonder black nerds love the Incredibles. Jews actually fear this type of narrative spin, as much as they also desire to add it to the Shoah story. The idea that Jews had greatness and therefore Hitler found it necessary to crush it borders on blaming the victim, or worse yet, playing into the age-old and still current trope that Jews are sinister geniuses who have actually always engineered all the misery the Goyim experienced, and, well, maybe they should be exterminated. Maybe they even brought it on themselves purposely to cash in on victimhood. The poetics of black strength, beauty, talent, and genius in the face of oppression may be what holds the captivity story as a story back in comparison to the show. The show is about victims surviving by chance, not merit, the industrial, stylish, sexually psychotic machine of extermination and genetic purification. The captivity is a story of brilliant, beautiful people achieving psychological and physical liberation through their power and will, and only partly by chance, if at all. What makes this a weakness is not merely the way it's perceived by the racist story-consuming public or the continued, albeit dwindling, dominance of the entertainment industry by Jews, though we cannot by any means discount these forces, it's also our current preference for stories that reflect the futility of fighting against fate and God and a heartless, unfair world. Stories of coming to terms with futility are very fashionable. They're considered a challenge to dogmatic religion, to the doctrine of temporal retribution, to social Darwinism, and therefore more mature than stories of triumph. Listen to Terry Gross's recent discussion on fresh air of Paul Schrader's new movie with the now old and venerable Schrader and the appropriately aged Ethan Hawke. Ironically, with everything else going against it, the story of captivity suffers from the shallowest of of narrative concerns. Happy endings are for babies. But since the captivity still continues, its captives have little choice but to confront it with hope. How else are black people to survive their ongoing persecution if they don't see themselves as heroes in the story? It's all very well for Jews to sing of their age-old victimization and being surrounded by enemies when they can also 
point to you know Freud and Einstein and any number of celebrated intellectuals, the invention of Hollywood, making the desert bloom in an entire colonial nation they founded as recently as 70 years ago. If black people were to peddle that same notion today, while nations on their original home continent still suffer the repercussions of colonialism and manipulations of post-colonialism, that would be to tempt defeat, just as they're on the cusp of either gaining ground or losing it. A balance that we might wonder if the dominant economic powers would like to preserve. The Shoah gains in comparison by having the clear defeat of its villains so many years in the past. With that under their belt, Jews can wallow in ambiguity and self-pity all they want. They know they've outlasted the biggest threat they'll ever face, despite their constant worry that can happen anywhere. Yes, it can, but it's unlikely to happen to the Jews, or only to the Jews, or at least that's the popular understanding, these former victims of the world's greatest evil who now seem to have so much going for them. Black oppression is global, institutional, and ongoing, and in a very real sense, it's especially harsh in the USA. Jewish oppression is regional, sporadic, and globally disorganized, more an acute mental and social infection than an entire economic system. Those differences feed different appetites in the dominant culture. Jewish oppression is perverted, stylish, powered by scientific and industrial tools and intellectual structures. Black oppression centers around misdirected virility, passion, jealous desire, powered by whips, sails, paddle wheels, quaint colonialism, and plows. Jewish oppression is existentially ambiguous which is narratively fashionable. Black oppression is heroic, which is considered not complex enough to be fashionable, especially as human faces, as uh, humanity faces extinction due to its own ingenuity. Even superhero movies were trying to downplay or complicate heroism for a while. Strangely, we're attracted to stories in which we're bound to lose just when we need the opposite. These aesthetic aspects are all insidiously backed up by racist and anti-Semitic tropes some buried deep in the cultural collective dream, and some more obvious but ignored or twisted or turned into memes or running gags on sketch comedy shows, but they're shallow concerns. Whose victimization is more sexy or sacred is a shallow question, but it does hint at persistent problems of privilege. The Jews have had a 3,000-year head start, and although the captivity began long before the Shoah, the Jews, partly due to whiteness, established an advantage in the business of imagery in the West that keeps them ahead of competing narratives of oppression. But the challenge represented by the oppression of Black people is coming into a renaissance. Black creators are establishing themselves more visibly and with more artistic freedom to play with genres, metaphors, and satire as the civil rights movement and white resistance to it are struggling through their most recent iteration. If nothing else, there's going to be more great art. If anything, the Jewish cultural contribution is languishing a ghost of its former post-war dominance. Tony Kushner is more a playwright than a Jewish playwright or even a gay playwright, while Donald Glover is a multifaceted black genius. The marvelous brilliance of James Baldwin is being revisited. Meanwhile, Philip Roth is dead. In part three next week, we'll look at the re-emergence and future of anti-Jewish and anti-black movements, the nationalists and white supremacists, and how enemies of fascism might cut them down at the root. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. I'm looking forward to part three. Until then. Yeah. Stay beautiful.
Okay. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell at thisishell.com. Thanks this week goes out to supporter Kilter, but soon we'll be thanking a lot more people as our new T-shirt will soon be available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. Alex, who's on next week's show? Assad Haider will be on to talk about his Verso book release, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. Jeff, Jeff will be back next week to do part three of his Moment of Truth. We want to thank this week's guests, award-winning new economy movement pioneer Helena Norberg-Hodge, podcast host and Russia analyst Sean Guillory of Sean's Russia blog podcast, neuroscientist Sarah Jane Blakemore, author of Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain. And this week's Hangover Cure was Beetroot. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Follow us on Facebook, or like us on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. This is not the media. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. First of all, thanks to Alex, Ronaldo, and Kate as well. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your bump, (laughs) sitting down in the lotus position, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, turning your palms towards the sky and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.